VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, May the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Today is a great day for you to join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, almost there. Long weekend is right around the corner. Do I remember that gravel pit camping was done away with in this province a few years ago? People were told they were not going to be allowed to do it. One of the famous ones, of course, driving down the Salmon Air Line. But here we go. And just in time for the long weekend, the price of fuels up across the board other than propane. Not massive hikes, but up nonetheless. So we can talk about wind, hydrogen, all that kind of stuff. But it's a windy province. Everyone knows it to be true. This is a picture shared by our friend and colleague Anthony Germain. It's a, the flagpoles outside the Muse Center up on Monday Pond Road. So they've got the three notable flags up, but they're all in tatters. You know, the routine should be take down the flags every evening, put them back up in the morning, and as soon as they start to fray or become tattered or torn, replace them. I mean, we've had a lot of discussion over the recent past about the flag, how it's been used as part of the narrative or protest or whatever the case may be. But I think collectively... We can all get behind having a flag that's in good repair flown, not ripped up, tattered flags. So this is the city of St. John's responsibility. And, of course, we'll see flags outside Confederation Building and other municipal buildings right across the province. So for the city of St. John's this morning, just because that's the picture we're looking at, replace the flags, right? You know, we're not talking about throwing money around like we're a bunch of Rockefellers, but respect for the flag has kind of been lost in certain corners over the last three years. So maybe, just maybe, we all, I think, would align with having a proper, appropriate flag flown atop those flagpoles, or staffs, I think we're supposed to call them. Anyway, let's go. I don't know if you're a tennis fan, but I think I'm going to go to the rooms at 1 o'clock this afternoon to have a look at the Davis Cup. You know, 129-year history, I think, and, of course, we're the defending champions, so if you're so inclined, that's going to be at the rooms at 1 o'clock this evening. And it's, yes, it's been nice to watch the Jays' big win last night. Danny Jansen for the second time in four days with a walk-off hit. So last night was a three-run shot. It was a uh, base knock the other night against Atlanta, so the Jays needed that one. And the hockey, I've been missing the hockey, even though it's only been off for a few days. Eastern final kicks off tonight. I want to give a shout-out to a fellow named uh, Jeff Woodman. So he participated in the 2023 edition of the West Indies Full Bore Individual Shooting Championships at the Crabs Rifle and Pistol Range in Antigua and Barbuda. So Mr. Woodman, from this province, led Team Canada day one, day two. They're the champs. Way to go. Jeff Woodman must be a crack shot. We can talk about whether it be the hunting issue and the moose licenses or, yes, even federal gun control policy and approach. But if you're into it, let's go. And apparently there's going to be a fellow, originally from Labrador, on Jeopardy tonight. We watch Jeopardy at supper time at our house. We PVR it, and we all trust each other not to sneak a look at it. And we watch Jeopardy, which can sometimes be very infuriating and really make you feel like you don't know anything because the categories and the questions are generally really quite tough. So this guy, John Groves, uh, grew up and went to school in Forto, now practicing law in Hamilton. He believes he's the first Labradorian ever to appear on Jeopardy. Lifelong interest in trivia, and so he went through the, uh, the testing, was put in the contestant's pool, eventually played a mock game, and followed up with a Zoom interview. He's going to be on Jeopardy tonight. So 
good for him. You got to be some slick and some clever to be on that program. I know Ted Blades has tried to get on Jeopardy. I'd like to see Ted on that show, too, because he's got a wealth of uh, trivia knowledge in that noggin. All right, so tourism season is upon us, which brings, of course, hopefully hundreds of thousands of visitors to the province. Nothing like out-of-province money being circulated for an economic uh, shock to the system, positively. So, of course, we take a lot of things for granted, right? Icebergs. Someone sent me a picture. They went on an iceberg tour yesterday in Twillingate, generally referred to as the uh, iceberg capital of the world in Iceberg Alley. It was an amazing photo. So it just outside the harbor, you could see maybe a dozen, maybe 15 icebergs. Some of them look like they're quite massive as well. But inside the rental season, I get these emails every single year. A lady originally from this province, traveling here with her husband and I think one of her children, they flew into St. John's. They want to go to places like Twillingate, can't find a rental. You know, tried to book one before they got here, thought maybe they'd get lucky. So if you're uh, someone who has put your car in the newly introduced app Toro last year, or thinking about it this year, but most importantly, I, I think, is if you put your vehicle up for rent during the tourism season, maybe you're a teacher and have the summer off and have two-vehicle family or something. I know people who did it, but it'd be nice to share your story, your experience, the money that you made. So maybe, just maybe, we can accommodate more tourists that need a rental. And of course, in the world of travel, WestJet looks like it's going to be a lockout 3 a.m. tomorrow morning. And of course, that's going to have a massive impact. Down south of the border of the United States, they're not allowed to lock out the pilots. They're not, pilots are not allowed to strike. They immediately bring in an arbitrator. So we don't do that here in this country. And this is going to really, I don't know how long it will last, probably not that long. There seems to be quite the gap between the offer from WestJet, the WestJet group, to the pilots, and the counter seems to be a pretty massive gap there, but let's go. And again, in the world of travel, not because I'm putting it back on the agenda, but because the Minister of Labrador Affairs, Lisa Dempster, is putting it back on the agenda, and that's the fixed link. She was attending the Northern Development Minister's Forum in Churchill, Manitoba, and she says the fixed link remains a priority. Okay, it has been given some sort of priority by the federal liberals as well, now in the hands of the Infrastructure Bank of Canada. But I guess we need a definition of what a priority means. So any single move afoot, some people think it's absolutely necessary to build it. Others just kind of scoff at the idea. And your opinion on it? Of course, it might be different if you're living on the Great Northern Peninsula, or specifically in Labrador, and what you think is the need, the necessity of a fixed link. People do tout the potential economic upside. I'm not sure if it's really what some people think it might be. But apparently it's back on the list as a priority. So what's next steps, I was asked respectfully, of both the federal government and the Infrastructure Bank and Minister Dempster? What are we doing? Are, is it just sitting there as a priority? Is there an active file? Have we gone out to the tunnel building companies of the world? Is it going to be mimicking the Confederation Bridge where its private capital builds it? And then there's a toll to be paid for capital recovery? Now that the federal government says it's a nation-building exercise, does that mean federal monies may be involved? But these questions never get much in the way of answers, even though they're the most important questions. And then consequently, you know, what do we do about ensuring that if there's going to be a massive increase in traffic volume, what does that mean for necessary work uh, for the highway network, particularly on the Great Northern Peninsula? But Minister Dempster says it's a priority. Is it one for you? And stick with Labrador for a second. Folks in Mud Lake, now we'll all remember back in 2017, when the water rose quite rapidly in the community of Mud Lake, it was on the 17th of May. So, of course, the residents blamed it strictly on the Muskrat Falls development, 
And some people at Hydro or the government said, no, it's not our fault. They talked about the type of ice. Like, what was it called? Shatter ice or something or other? And so they brought in some experts to talk about why the reason for the flooding. But the residents are quite confident that there's, it was Muskrat Falls is to blame. So they brought forward a class action suit. It was certified in 2019. Uh, the government got backed out based on appeal. So it's still in the courts or still proceeding. Nalcor, or pardon me, Nalcor Hydro, still has to turn over millions of pages of documents for consideration and evaluation. So this could drag on for years. So the compensation hasn't flowed. Now, interestingly, when we talk about compensation dollars, whether it be out in Fiona on the southwest coast, and in Mud Lake, they were offered up to $270,000 per household, not in compensation for loss, but just told, if you take the money, you got to move. Some people did, but some residents, even though it's a very small, isolated community, only of some 40 people, and there's been long concerns about downriver problems from Muskrat, whether it be the estuary that is uh, Lake Melville, and that's gone by the wayside. We don't talk about that at all anymore. But the folks in Mud Lake still waiting these six years later, and it might be years and years to come before there's any movement on that certified class action. Let's talk about it. All right, what does this say? Oh, so sometimes when we talk about first responders, paramedics and stuff, we talk about the problems with the contracts and the red alerts and the inability or the time it takes to drive 223 kilometers from Harbor Brighton to Grand Falls, Windsor with someone who's facing an emergency. What we don't necessarily talk about enough is the first responders themselves. It's not just work-life balance or the rate of pay or the parts of the province that that proved to be very difficult to recruit a paramedic. It's what they see when they respond to a call. I suppose we don't think about it or talk about it much because it's quite traumatic. Whether it come on a, a collision on the highway, someone's seriously injured, maimed, or dead, or respond to a fire, and God knows what you see when you arrive on those types of scenes. So, of course, that's a lot of baggage to take home each and every day. And add into it, like, for instance, with volunteer firefighters. You know, the only difference between them and professional firefighters, so to speak, is the paycheck. And what they see, of course, can be devastating. So now it looks like the province is going to invest some money to create a part of project for a mental health toll phone line. LifeWise gets the contract for some $236,000, one-year pilot. The line will be staffed 12 hours a day, seven days a week, by six paid workers in the province. They would have lived experience as a first responder, so would be able to empathize with the types of calls they hear. So yes, we can talk about the consolidation process of some 60 splintered contracts and what that will look like and when the consultant is going to bring forward the report, but that sort of eliminates the human element of what must be not only a very difficult job taxing, but the things they see, the baggage they bring home, the toll on their mental well-being. So this is a really obviously a very good idea. It should be up and running by mid-June. The Paramedics Association, of course, we speak with Rodney Goody so often, every year so often here on this program. They're quite pleased with this and hoping it will be extended beyond a one-year pilot project, but that's probably a very, very good move because sometimes we kind of lose sight of the individuals when we talk about these issues. You know, it's high-level stuff. It's headline stuff. Rate of pay. Even when we talk about other healthcare professionals in the system, sometimes the human element gets left by the wayside, but we should try to include it as much as possible. What do you think? Let's talk about it. And also inside the world of ambulance uh, services on the ground. Air is very complicated, and we can talk about it with residents from Labrador in particular, if you'd like to this morning. So we don't know what it's going to look like, but certainly, hopefully, the consultant is looking at other places in the country, other jurisdictions like British Columbia, 
where they've come up with a way for non-emergency transport to not be done by a fully staffed regular ambulance with paramedics aboard. Yes, people with healthcare training, but not the full emergency response vehicles that we generally think of as an ambulance. So let's put that in there. All right, let's go to law enforcement. Yesterday, the RCMP held a recruitment drive. So there's a shortage of RCMP officers across the country. So some 50 potential candidates showed up at this recruitment drive or job fair. Here's the numbers. We are short 30 RCMP officers in the province. And in terms of percentage, it's the biggest shortage or the largest shortage of RCMP officers in the entire country. The RNC say they're short-staffed as well. So while people clamor for more of a police presence, whether it be by either of these law enforcement agencies and maybe just maybe more highway and traffic enforcement, if they're short-staffed, then that's a problem. You know, I think it's probably bigger than just the numbers once again. At one point in our history, the RCMP, the RNC, and other law enforcement were highly respected. Lots of things have changed. Now, of course, all the bad news gets all the headlines, as opposed to good work members of law enforcement are doing day in and day out. So it was a highly coveted job. You know, the competition to get into the RCMP was severe. You know, there are stories from years past where 98% of applicants to join the uh, RCMP in particular were rejected. Why? Because just so many people wanted to be on the force. So now we've got that shortage right across the board for both the RNC and the RCMP. And as we know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. You know, full well, if people in certain communities that may not have an RCMP presence, they're probably more apt and willing and wanting to whether it be petty crime all the way to serious crimes because they know they've got a chance to scatter before the RCMP are able to respond because they're so far away. Anyway, let's talk about that. All right, you might be sick of talking about snow crab, but it's a massive issue. It just really, truly is. At this stage, whether we talk about the impact on plant workers or communities, we've heard from the leaders in Bonavista, New West Valley, Triton, St. Mary's. We'll get to St. Mary's in a second more uh, substantially. At this point, given the commentary or the rhetoric from the union or the Association for Seafood Producers, the relationship has long been adversarial, even though they, ha they have common goals when you step back and think about it. But now it's so contentious that the relationship looks fractured, potentially beyond repair. So when we talk about the market today or changing the process in the future, the premier intervened. Basically what was asked of the premier is to allow outside buyers to come in or for the harvesters to be allowed to truck their crab out, and pretty much no to both. Maybe a look in years to come about rejigging the structure of the fishery, because I think that's long overdue. But how do you put the relationship back in some workable fashion? Because right now it doesn't look like it at all. The Association for Seafood Producers are now talking about the snow crab fishery, the focus on public safety. Amazing. So they're going to have security at the wharf, security at the plants. Some of the harvesters are going for the snow crab at $2.20 per pound. Around the rest of Atlantic Canada, they're only selling it for two twenty-five. So it really is a market issue. I don't know where, if this is going to see any light of day this year. I would imagine it will. There's a lot on the line here. I wonder if some of the process could include this. If there was a more carefully defined percentage of the market price afforded to either side because that's a big part of that kind of got lost in the shuffle this year the harvesters had a much bigger percentage of the market price last year versus this year so if there was some consistency across the board there that might be helpful
because the market is what the market is. You know, and we were having a chat in the hallways, and it's interesting that the price of just about everything has gone up when we talk about food, grocery items. But, of course, this is, crap's not a necessity of life. For the most part, it's a delicacy. It's a luxury item. So luxury items haven't really fallen in line with the food inflation that we've seen. I also wonder whether or not more thought or consideration to what a co-op might look like. Whether it be on Fogo Island, the Labrador Shrimp Company, and places where a co-op is in place, a more mutually beneficial arrangement that I think can include the processing sector. So you wonder if the whole way the industry is executed, regardless of species, has to be, you know, quote-unquote, blown up and start from scratch. Because what we do today simply doesn't work. So whether it be percentage of market price, whether it be further examination of co-ops, whether you think that might work in your region, because the mutually beneficial, which should indeed be part and highlight of the fishery, is not that at all. It's the furthest thing from. This is a zero-sum game. There's got to be winners and losers, given the way that the industry is currently structured today. So anyway, and speaking of St. Mary's, remarkable. Last year, when they were finally awarded a crab license, there was a parade in the community. The crab plant had been shut down for quite a while, and finally they got a license. Some 100 people were parading through the community, the opportunity to employ some 200 people in that crab processing plant, and now this. So the jubilation has now been shrouded with a very dark cloud, so says the mayor of the community, Steve Ryan. And Steve, if you're listening this morning, pardon me, Mayor Ryan, you can join us here on the program. But just imagine how quickly times change. From a parade to down in the mouth. So you might be sick of talking about the snow crab, but I think this has implications beyond this year and this species, and I think it's going to drag on for quite a while. And also regarding St. Mary's, you know, it's too bad we don't have the, uh, the crab plant up and running, but remember, it's not that long ago, we were talking about the uh, fish sauce dilapidated building. It's been shuttered for a couple of decades. So the, uh, the capelin and the pineapple, I mean, it's just rancid. It really, truly is. Then add to it, there was some work done by Environment Canada in 2016 where they placed all the fish that were uh, exposed to the effluent, they died within 15 minutes, and nobody told the community. So I know we're talking crab, but I wonder what's going to become of that plant because eyesore and absolutely reeks, and there's a school, a school very close by. So anyway, that one kind of went off the radar, but I'm putting it back out there. All right, how are we doing on the telephone, Dave? There's a bunch of stuff I wanted to get to, but I suppose I'll hold it. There is a protest today at the Frank Roberts Jr. High. You know the story regarding Frank Roberts Jr. High, so at 10 a.m. this morning. So if you're going to participate or you want to call from the protest site when you arrive at 10 this morning, we're happy to take that call. And there's just so much I want to talk about, you know, tampered eye medication. Did you read that story this morning? I guess that, that requires a few more minutes, so I'll hold that off for now. But that is a crazy story. We're on Twitter. Where VOCM Open Line follows there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue to talk about a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ed. You're on the air. Hey, it's morning, Patty. I'm doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. The phone this morning of an incident that happened yesterday afternoon at Bannerman Park. Now, luckily, and I didn't notice they were down there, but luckily security was down there. Who's basically apparently got the, the city got security paid for to take care of the place down there. Uh, child I was with, who was you know playing on the playground stuff like that. Of course, you know after a while, like you're playing around, messing around, stuff like that. Yeah, he's washer. Okay, fine, no big deal. 
Now, last time I was down there, the bathrooms were closed because of vandalism or something like that. So I wasn't sure it was open. So I told him, why not see if the thing is open, just in case, right? So he goes up there to the door, and I'm walking up towards him, right, to go to the bar myself with him, right? And uh, he gets to the door, and, of course, I wasn't looking at the time. I was trying to see where I was going to because there was, like, stuff on the ground and that. And he tried to open the door. And uh, I said, is the door open? And he wouldn't answer me. So then he said, open the door. I said, so he tried to open the door. And next thing I know it, somebody shut the door on him. I'm like, what the hell? What's going on here? Then he tried it again. This is a female in the men's washroom. In the men's washroom. What came out when I grabbed the door, she didn't realize there was an actual adult there, right? She runs out, and a male behind her. And apparently there's another male in the bathroom stall. Next thing I know it, I goes in there with him, of course, because, you know, it's like, okay, I don't know what's going on here. This is sketchy as hell, right? Next thing I know, a guy comes behind me, asks me if there's any problem. He said, come outside for a second. I said, yeah, okay. This is security. Now, luckily for him, security is there. Because in any event, any other parent, no matter who you are, is wondering, what the hell is this lady doing in the washroom with two males? I can take a guess. Well, we're not guessing at it. Let's put it that way. There shouldn't have to be any issues of what went down or what's going on. But the point is, one, why is a female in the washroom in the first place pulling the door shut in a public washroom that's out in a park? She has, should have no, absolutely no business in there at all. And the guy who was in with her should have no business in there either if he's not doing an actual business as such, mm-hmm. right? An actual ordinary number one or number two. Understood. Luckily for pretty well everybody down there, there was actually security on Thank God the city got some sense in it. Now, they should have the same thing out in, in Boring Park. Hopefully they will this year because I know many years ago, Something we know what went down in 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 Boring Park one day with a with male jumping on females and stuff like that in the pools. But I mean, to see it yourself, you hear about it, but you don't see it up front. But when it happens to you, you're like, "What the hell's going on here?" Um, to me, that's a huge safety concern in every sense of the word. Because if you have a young child going into a bathroom to use the washroom, most most parents will go in and make sure everything's okay, you know, sure. it's yeah. okay, no, no problem at all. But when you've got an adult that's not supposed to be in there, don't care what gender you are, already don't give a shit, but you're not supposed to be in a man's washroom. Yeah, I know, I understand that. So how old are these, this, uh, the men and the women? I'm guessing by the looks of them, probably, I'd say, close to 20s or 30s. Definitely probably early 30s, I'm guessing. Yep. Right? And, of course, security came up to security personnel, right? And then what happened? Then they, he he did his business. I stayed outside the door for a moment talking to security guards. He was okay inside because I, you know, kept an eye on him anyway. Anyway, security went over and talked to him. Now, she gave some stupid excuse. Oh, my boyfriend was cheating on me and all that. I don't care if your boyfriend was cheating on you. 
Okay, you had no business being in the bathroom. Absolutely no business at all. So what did security do? They talked to him. They told him, go away. Like, get out of there. You know, I'm assuming, I'm hoping they took their names or something like that, you know, as a security personnel to, you know, document the actual event itself, right? I don't know what they did. I have no idea. But the point is, luckily, there was security down there because if that happened pretty well to anybody else, that could have been a huge incident. And of course, in the downtown core, especially we have people who are doing different things, we don't know if it's drugs, some blah, blah, blah activity of male and female thing going on. We have no idea, right? But if there's an altercation down there, lucky security's there because it could come into a situation that that person, whoever is doing something in the bathroom, could have something on that could cause harm to you. You don't know. Oh, right? it could be right? quite dangerous. There's no question. I mean, public bathrooms, there's long been a concern with people going in there to do something than, other than using the bathroom, notably using drugs, which can present a very dangerous situation for whoever comes in behind them, from a child to an adult my age, because you just don't know what you might be getting yourself into. If it was something like uh, them, you know what, then obviously unacceptable, public washroom, children around, can't have it. So I just wonder, like you, whether or not their names were taken, anything more will come from it. For instance, not being allowed to go to the park or to use the public facilities or swim in the pool or whatever the case may be. But I'm glad it didn't turn out to be a terrible situation. Obviously not good for you or your boy, but you know, security, whether or not they should have their eyes focus on the places that where the most danger is, and that could be very well in the bathrooms. I don't know. Is there is there only two in the park? Do they work for the city? Or are they a private security company? Did, did you get a sense of who they work for? Well, um, they're being, as far as I know, I believe they're contracted out by the city, which most of the city contracts work out anyway for security-wise, because security, the, the, the city itself rather have professionals doing it, which they should anyway in the first place, instead of city workers doing it. Yes, yeah, teenagers right. who just hired on for the summer or something, yeah. Well, no, these 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 particular people are, are basically security trained and all that. I was agreeing with you. And, uh, security as opposed to someone hired on to work at the pool for a summer job. Well, that's it. That's it, right? You know, somebody's actually trained in situations where something could happen and hopefully nothing ever will happen in any particular way, right? I mean... That that's the thing, right? And we, nobody really knows, especially out in public, exactly what the public is going to do, especially a situation like that. We don't. Nobody really knows, right? I appreciate you telling us about it. Hopefully, now that security has seen this particular example, that they'll be more aware of it in the future. And hopefully, your young fellow's okay as well. I appreciate the time. Well, Anything else quickly? Well, is is that? It's not the concern of the security. They were there like, like literally in seconds when okay. I walked into the bathroom door. Like they were on top of it. They knew there was something going down, right? They knew it right off the bat. My concern is the public understanding that you've got to watch when you go into the washroom, what's going on, because you don't know there could be needles and all that. Because I know for a fact that that particular spot down there had to be closed down because somebody went in there and caused over thirty thousand dollars worth of damage in the bathroom. They had to shut the bathrooms down because of damage and destruction and let's say everything all over the walls and stuff like that. So including needles mm-hmm. and everything else. So like I said, they're they're checked regularly anyway. Security's on top of it, which I a hundred percent absolutely was fantastic about and ever since the word I'm very, very, very glad they showed up in literally seconds. Good. I'm not joking. Like as soon as I walked through the door 
there was another guy right behind me, and he was scary. Well, it's a fair warning that you put out for the patrons of any of these public facilities and public washrooms. I appreciate the time, Ed. I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. And hopefully nothing will happen. But, again, you could have a situation. You could. Like, these guys are only on a limited time. They're only from certain hours to certain hours um, until the park is technically closed and that's why they closed them at night and even during the pandemic at parts they closed them up permanently like in uh, bowering park which is not great for someone who actually has to use the bathroom and i've got to get to the break but i appreciate your time thanks for this you too you have a good day you too bye-bye all right before we get to the break let's go to line number one caller you're on the air hello hello patty yep yes i'm uh, new to the province just came from another province and back here because of a medical condition. And I've tried all the resources for seniors. I am a senior, and I tried all the resources, and there's nothing available uh, to rent. Uh, I was wondering if anyone from the general public or whatever could accommodate a senior for maybe a month or two, and I do have an inkling to get another apartment uh, at at the place that I tried, and they could give you the number. I won't leave my name, please, but you can contact me okay. if you have any information. David has your number. So what specifically are you looking for, a short-term rental, just a one-bedroom uh, place for you, just you and you alone? Just just a one-bedroom place, not a basement, uh-huh. one-bedroom place, and I need, need it for long-term, please. Okay, and uh, not to pry into your personal finance, but are you able to pay? Yes, and, and, and I have the funds in place, yes. Okay. And it needs to be in the city, I assume, if you're looking yes. for health care. Okay. Yes, because so, yes, I, I have a problem with, with uh, my mobility. Well, uh, I, off the top of my head, I cannot say that I know a place, but I know people in the in the business, uh, property managers, what have you. Some of them that listen to the show, they sometimes respond right away with an option. So we'll keep your name out of it. David does have your contact information. If someone comes through us with information or an opportunity for you, we'll be sh- certain to get back to you right away. And and I need a smoke-free building, please. Smoke-free, absolutely. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck. Hopefully we'll get back to you soon. Thank you now. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to the executive director at Thrive. That's uh, Angela Crockwell. Good morning, Angela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing great. I am um, just calling in because over the years, we've certainly had a number of conversations about Blue Door and our funding. Mm -hmm. And um, we recently were uh, granted a three-year grant from the federal government through their um, Department of Justice um, for our Blue Door program. So I certainly wanted to share that positive news with you and your listeners this morning. Yeah, you were helping or treating, or pardon me, serving some 70 people at up to 35 your staffing level went i believe from six to two or something like that correct me if i'm wrong and so consequently when people are trying to find a way a safe exit from the sex trade your program was one of the few if not the only one in the city or province to accommodate so this is actually very good news before we go any further because you and i know what blue door is but describe the work that you do 
yeah, sure. So uh, we are located in the city and uh, serve anybody primarily between the ages of 14 and 29, but certainly have uh, worked with people outside of that age range. But anybody who's had engagement in the sex trade and really feel that they need some supports, um, that that's no longer um, something that they want to be engaged in, or if they've been trafficked uh, or exploited and they really need supports to leave that situation, then Blue Door works with people one-on-one to provide pretty intense wraparound supports to help um, help people address those issues. So I imagine there's got to be a distinct therapeutical portion of this, but then it's what happens next in their life. So what sort of training or uh, programs include literacy skills or education or what have you? Because it's one thing to get out, but you need to, somewhere to go. Yeah, and I mean, the issue around uh, income and poverty is certainly a significant barrier that we see um, that really puts um, a strain on folks, um, you know, when they leave, if they don't have a source of income, um, you know, that that poses lots of challenges from just trying to provide if they have children or their day-to-day life or pay rent. So we certainly help people if they need um, employment support if they need uh, educational supports. Um, we do a lot of referral out now. In our previous funding, we actually had one staff person that was dedicated to that. Uh, you know, Our staffing model is down significantly. Um, as you said, we're down to two staff. But we certainly really work with um, people and, and have seen um, a number of people who have uh, completed education and are currently, we just had somebody finish their third year at MON. Um, so it is really important for people to have other opportunities. You know, we talk about people who need help. They have to want help before they can get help. Do you go to them or do you rely on them coming to you? So we have historically uh, accepted referrals and for people to reach out to us. And we did originally when we started, we did outreach and we're trying to spread the word of who we were. But we once we did that, the referrals started to come in and we have actually not done a ton of outreach since that date because um, we actually held a wait list for a long time so it just didn't make sense to go out and do outreach to people and then they say yeah I really would like some support and we say well sorry the program's full so um, we have always operated over capacity so um, yeah we generally are accepting referrals in from folks. Sex work is generally done in the shadows, generally speaking. Do we we have any idea how many people we think are working in the sex trade in this province? There is no stats. um, And, I mean, the number of people, um, as you said, who are working, whether it's in the by-choice sex work or who are experiencing trafficking or exploitation, um, obviously for lots of reasons around stigma and um, shame, people don't often talk about it openly, so it really is challenging to know the numbers. I know for Blue Door, um, as you said, we had supported uh, up to 73 people in the first five years. We did an additional 35 last year and I know we have since we've just you know, briefly announced the funding we've already received four brand new referrals so there's certainly a, um, a significant need for the work that we're doing. 
you mentioned human trafficking and exploitation. Sometimes people think that's in the movies or that's in Thailand or that's coyotes bringing uh, young women across the Mexican-American border or what have you. But then we heard from a lady who was formerly from this province doing this type of work that you do. Uh, it was either in the York or the Durham region, Ontario, talk about seeing more and more girls or young women from this province being trafficked where she is in Ontario. What do we see here? Because people seem to think in some corners that this is more mythical than real, but we know, unfortunately, it's very real. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I do think that, um, you know, we watch the movies and we see stuff like the movie Taken and people think that's what it looks like or you have to cross borders. But really, if you have an individual who is forcing somebody into the sex trade, um, you know, forced coercion, threats of violence, those kinds of things, and that is that is human trafficking. And you do not need to, you don't need to cross borders. You actually, you don't need to leave the city of St. John's uh, to have that experience. Experience. So I wasn't surprised when I also seen that news article talking about the number of people that um, that lady was seeing from our province. And we've also noted um, a number of people that we've supported from Blue Door actually have been from other provinces that they may have to leave their their province for safety reasons and end up here um, to, to get supports because of, again, threats of violence and safety that w- was happening to them uh, in their home province. Let's uh, finish the interview with, or the conversation, with a, a, some good news stories, because you mentioned briefly that one of the people that's went through the Blue Door program is now in their third year at Memorial University. Paint a picture how successful the program has been and how important it is, because we can talk about the exploitation, human trafficking, and the reality of life, and the retraining, and those types of things, the rental support. But tell us some good news. Yeah, absolutely. I will say the uh, work that we have done at Blue Door has been really uplifting and heartfelt. And, you know, hats off to the staff for doing the work every day, but more so to the people who access Blue Door. They have been and are amazing, resilient people who have been through often very traumatic experiences and they do an incredible amount of hard work to rebuild their lives and we're obviously trying to work alongside them but we have seen people who now are you know have bought their own home have graduated from post-secondary have maintained employment for several years we have uh, a number of people who've completed um, treatment programs and are uh, maintaining sobriety so people are working really really hard um, Um, and having lots of success. Obviously, it's not like, you know, we certainly see people who are still struggling um, and, uh, you know, every day it's a bit of a battle, so it's not all, um, you know, roses, but you know, even those stories, they're still here and they're still trying, so we see that as a success as well. Angela, I always appreciate your time. I'm really pleased to hear that the funding is now in place for the next three years and hopefully into the future. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Angela Crockwell, Executive Director over at Thrive. That's the organization that runs the Blue Door Program. I uh, appreciate the patience there. Some snow crab harvesters have decided enough is enough and they're gone for the crab. One such harvester is Terry Ryan, fishing out of the sea. Him and his son have gone out there. We'll hear from Terry right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Terry, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Can you hear me, Patty? I can hear you fine. Okay, yes, um... Patty, uh, anyway, uh, good morning to you and your listeners. Um, 
and everybody, well, a lot of people know who I am. Um, I uh, want to comment on the current crab fishery or lack of crab fishery situation. Uh, first, I'm going to start with a question. Um, you're a very knowledgeable man, or I think you are. Uh, do you have any idea how much the crab fishery in Newfoundland Labrador on an average year uh, contributes to our provincial economy compared to the offshore oil? Uh, well, they're kind of you know, I, I don't want a dollar value, but it doesn't rank behind the oil industry, ahead of it, way behind it. Do you have any idea at well, all? It depends exactly what that question means. And it's an interesting question in and of itself because we talk about, say, for Hello? instance, oil as a common shared resource, right? We say the same thing about the fishery, but it's not really. You know, I don't benefit from the fishery like we do from the oil industry because the royalties flow into the general coffers that get spent, whether misspent or otherwise, by the government. So it's a good question. And it depends. A lot of things. So land and value just on crab alone last year was a bit shy of a billion dollars. You know, I think it was $775 million or something. Then add the rest of the species. Land and value in excess of a billion dollars. Generally, you know, of course it fluctuates based on the price. Same thing happens in the oil business. This year we're going to see in excess of a billion dollars come in in the form of royalties. Then you add in the jobs, direct and indirect. Same thing the fishery, jobs, direct and indirect. So I think the oil industry from the stand back and look at it from 20,000 feet probably is a more significant contributor to the government coffers itself, but that's not in an effort to diminish the importance of the fishery and the value of it because it's huge. If you've got the grocery stores and the bars and the restaurants and the trucking companies and the suppliers that deal with fish harvesters and plant workers and the processing sector, of course, the ripple effect is enormous, no doubt. Okay, yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, my other comment I want to make is that I feel that uh, Mr. Pretty, Greg Pretty, uh, should resign as president of the FFAW immediately. Uh, the secretary treasurer there, Mr. Spingle, I don't know that well, but whenever things go good for an organization, <clears throat> the buck stops at the leader. Whenever things go bad for an organization, the buck stops at the leader. And right now, the leader is Mr. Pretty. So I feel he should resign immediately. Why is that, Terry? Why specifically? Uh, because I, in my opinion, he's a very poor leader. He was tossed into that role when Pete Sullivan resigned. I don't, I'm not convinced he wanted that hateful job, but I suppose he, he took it as a, a short-term measure, and uh, I think he's way out of his league there. Um so that's that's only my opinion. Um, but let me just—I want you to elaborate a bit on it because is it about something he has said or something he has done, whether it be publicly or behind closed doors or what have you? So why do you think he's the wrong person for this job at this moment in time? Well, he's—he's he's, um, in my opinion, and Mr. Pretty should rein in uh, his hooligans uh, and and Jason Sullivan's hooligans. Uh, they're holding uh, this province hostage right now. They're holding uh, hundreds and hundreds of plant workers hostage. They're holding thousands of fisher people, enterprise owners and crew members hostage. They're holding countless uh, graders, monitors, truck drivers, trucking companies, businesses uh, that support the fishery hostage. Um, uh, and there is no 
justifiable reason for it, not to people who think rationally. There is justifiable reason to the hooligans. But now, Terry, aren't you an example of how being held hostage might be an overstatement? You decided to go fishing. You're gone for the crab, so you weren't held hostage. You found a way out. Isn't that available to every other fish harvester in the province? Well, first of all, I'm not gone fishing. I'm out here by the beautiful Humber River right now talking to you. Uh, my son has gone fishing. Okay, your enterprise is out there. Yes, okay. Yes, and um, he's gone fishing. He's gone to set gear just like, uh, I would venture to say, as many as 100 other uh, over 40-foot uh, boats around the province. Um, you know, he, he might have crab aboard. He might not. He jokingly told me he did yesterday, and uh, he might, he might, he might not. But uh, we're being held hostage because we can't come in and sell that crab. The processors are too fearful of uh, retribution from uh, these people. But now Jeff Loder uh, says they'll buy it at two twenty. Yeah, yes, Jeff Loader said he'll buy it, but Jeff Loader's membership can't process it. They, 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 if anybody brings crab in, they cannot guarantee that that crab will safely get to the plant, and they can't guarantee that it can get processed. They can't guarantee their workers will get into the plant, and they can't guarantee their safety. They're working on that now, as Jeff Loader said this morning, and they're trying to get security arranged, but up to this point, that has not been done. Yeah, I don't know how difficult it will be to put some security in place. There's lots of companies doing that, providing that service here, so I don't know the timeline. But if there's, I don't even know if there's any crab been uh, brought to the wharf as at this moment in time. I don't know, but certainly... Well, Mr. Pretty, Mr. Pretty, you see in his news conference, um, gloat at the point that uh, 99.99% of the crab is still uh, of this year's quote is still in the water. I don't, uh, any listener listening to it know that he did not say a hundred percent. First, he said ninety nine point nine, and later, I think after a reporter's question, he said ninety nine point nine nine percent is still in the water. He would not say a hundred percent. Yeah, so I don't know how to read between that line, but of course, if, the, if there's point zero one percent of crap that's been landed, I don't know what became of it. Uh, and I don't either. Uh, now, the other thing is Mr. Privy, and he's the leader, uh, I, I, uh, and he hasn't uh, denounced it. He has not publicly come out and denounced those threats of violence that are on the goal by his membership against other membership. Uh, he has not publicly denounced it. So his lack of denouncement is, is uh, encouraging it and emboldening those hooligans to make those threats. So. Uh, there's many reasons why I feel Mr. Pretty should resign. I, he's probably a very intelligent man. I don't know the man. Uh, he's probably a, a real good guy. Uh, but his leadership of the FFAW right now is not good, in my opinion, okay? Uh, the other thing is he's saying, well, they did ask the provincial government yesterday to bring in outside buyers. Uh, he said that they will sign off on an agreement to give the green light for crab fishermen to go fishing for two twenty a pound. Uh, if the government would immediately allow outside buyers to come into this province. Now, again, in my opinion, outside buyers are not going to ever come in this province as long as Patty Daly and Terry Ryan has got a heartbeat and we're not six feet underground or ashes is not six feet underground. Why would an outside buyer come to Newfoundland 
to buy fish of any species when he can get it cheaper in his own province. You know, why is a buyer going to do that? I mean, he'd be out of his mind. Well, it mean, depends, that. though, Terry, how far down the line that buyer would come from, because I use this example all the time. Mm. There was a year when the uh, codfish harvesters were getting around 65 cents, 70 cents a pound. We went to Florida, walked into a grocery store, salt cod from this province at eighteen ninety nine a pound. So there's lots of hands that goes through by, by the time it gets to the consumer, whether it be at a white tablecloth or in a grocery store or otherwise. So it kind of depends where that buyer falls in the, the pecking order, right? So, but I think your point is is interesting and valid. For instance, if I'm landing crab from the Magdalene Islands and getting two twenty five a pound, who thinks that a buyer is going to come in and pay any more than being able to go and buy that crab at two twenty five? This is a market issue. You know, we can talk about the process and the structure and the need to rejig how it all works, but the market is what the market is. That's where I can't really get past the whole concept of tie up for the sake of this season. Because if the market is able to bear four seventy five a pound American, and between all the hands it goes through from the harvester to the processor to the trucker and the distributor and the salespeople, that's it. Patty, 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 you're going off the point I was trying to make, okay? The point I was trying to make, even if the buyer is located in north, the closest mainland point, uh, except for the coastal harbor, or the closest Atlantic Canadian mainland point to Newfoundland is North Sydney, to my knowledge, if you want to deal with the ferry. Do you know the logistics involved for a buyer? Let's say, let's use North Sydney as an arbitrary place, closest yeah. point to Newfoundland. Do you have any idea of the logistics involved for a buyer to come to Newfoundland and buy twenty thousand pound of crab, or twenty thousand pound of cod, or twenty thousand pound of shrimp? Do you know the logistics that that requires? Oh, I've never done it. But what happens if that person came from New York City? Okay, well, let's say New York City. And the, fly the, it logis- out. the logistics don't change. And, and fly it out. Okay, so what's he going to fly out? Finished product or raw material? It depends what he buys, I suppose. Okay, so how is he going to buy it? Do you? I don't think, uh, like I said, you're a very knowledgeable man. You're a very intelligent man, I think. But you obviously are not educated on the logistics of involved of an outside buyer coming to Newfoundland, coming to a wharf, to buy fish, I, either you don't understand it or you're not saying it because you're trying to, uh, you know, and that's your job to play the devil's advocate in this conversation. No, no, it's not. But, like, I mean, you can disparage me all you like. I mean, it's not the first time you've done it. But why would the logistics be any different for an outside buyer versus the processors here in this province who sell their product to wherever, Japan or New York City? Or they're, they're, they're no different, but they have to... They have to, they have the added expense not only of transporting that product off this island. They have the had the added expense. They've got to come here first. They've got to get wharf space, and in some fish harvest, in some ports, the Arbor Authority has that wharf space. In some places, uh, offloading companies have lease arrangements for the wharf space. They have their own electronic scales. They have their half loaders. Uh, now, I'm Joel Blow coming in from New York City. Uh, Patty Daly's boat just came to the wharf with 7,000 pounds of crab aboard. How are you going to get that crab out of the boat? You've got to first get a wharf space arranged. You've got to convince that fisherman that you're not some fly-by-night buyer whose check is going to bounce when he gets it. You've got to arrange offloaders to get that crab out of the boat. Yeah. You've got to pay an offloading fee to the local harbor authority. You've got... 
you know, this, this program is not long enough for me to explain to you all the logistics involved. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's doesn't matter what the product is. Getting product out to wherever the final destination is, whether it be a mineral or a tree or a fish or a crab, they all have similar circumstances and issues that have to be broached and contracts to be signed and transfers of dollars. No one's going to sell to someone that they don't know from who knows where, and here's a check. I mean, no business operates like that. So regardless if you've ever worked in the fishery or not, I mean, just that's just not what happens. So I don't really know, and I'm in no mood to argue with you about any of these things. All I've long said is that how we currently do business is not working. Look no further than the snow crab fishery. Not working for the harvester. On that point, we agree. This system we got now is not working. It's broken. It's broken beyond repair. It's broken so bad now. We got people going around the province, fellow Newfoundlanders, uh, putting the fear of God in other Newfoundlanders if they choose to exercise their right to work. Our God-given legislator right to work. This is how low we've become now as Newfoundlanders. I mean, my God, the impression we're creating to the rest of Canada. Yeah, and this could be possibly considered a strike, which is not allowed in the current structure of the fishery anyway. And very quickly, if an outside buyer came, and if that was allowed and amendments were made, they'd be possibly coming to set up shop long-term, as opposed to having a logistical nightmare for one species just one season. If it was allowed, it might become a permanent feature. Consequently, logistical issues could be understood and overcome. And when we talk about outside buyers, Terry, you yourself, you steamed across the Gulf to sell your shrimp to an outside buyer. Yes, but did that outside buyer have to come to set up in Newfoundland to get Terry Ryan's shrimp? Did he? No, but they also talked about... Answer my question, please. Answer my question, please. Did he? I don't owe you anything, Terry. So, but also... So you're not going to answer my question. Now, you're the host of a provincial program, and you are not going to answer my question. What was the question? Did that outside buyer that Terry Ryan sold his shrimp to uh, last year and sold his redfish to this winter... Did they have to come and set up shop in Newfoundland and Labrador? No, you went to them, which is also exactly. part of what the FFAW... I rest my, I rest my point. There's a, before you, I go... But your case isn't closed. Is a, the case isn't closed because they've also asked for the ability to truck their product out to the outside buyer, not just that they have to come here, so they've asked for both. So exactly yeah. what you did by steaming, they'd like to do by truck. Yes, and, 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 and is that, that's... Uh, on that point, again, that's freedom if they give, are given their freedom, but now you've got to organize the trucking, and you've got to organize. Uh, what I'm saying, Patty, is not as black as white and white as it seems. Okay, I've never said my it was. Final, my final point before you have to go and I have to go: if there is no crab fishery this year, and it's looking more and more every day like there might not be a crab fishery this year, if there's no crab fishery this year, we will lose our foothold in the American market. This year, we don't have a Japanese market because of reasons that I'm sure you, you and your listeners are aware, some of your right. listeners. We have a foothold in the American market. And if we do not put Newfoundland and Labrador crab in the American market to compete against our Atlantic province neighbors who are already doing it, they're our competitors, you won't have to worry, in Terry Ryan's opinion again, Okay. You will, not you, not you. You're not a crab fisherman. Crab fishermen will not have to worry about getting 220 next year. You'll have to worry if you're going to get 70 cents a pound for your crab next year. Appreciate the time. Off I go. All right. Thank All right. you. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. 
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Fred, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you. Yes, so I would... Uh Hats off to uh, Danny Breen, the city councillors, the city workers and the citizens of uh, keeping St. John's the dirtiest city in Canada yet once again. It's awful, boy. It's unbelievable. Embarrassing. Yeah, every time someone brings up that topic, I go back to it was a few years ago, went to pick up some of my friends at the airport. We didn't get all the way down to New Drive before they said, man, it's pretty dirty. Like, oh, Everybody no. that comes here says the same thing. Yeah, I suppose they do. Have people coming from uh, business uh, and embarrassing, uh, they are, like, they're saying, like, I hate to say this, but there's some garbage and litter around. Unreal. Uh and they're always talking about more cruise ships. We need to get more cruise ships pulling into St. John's. If I was on a cruise ship that pulled into St. John's, I'd be asking for my money back. Most definitely. Uh, if uh, St. John's was a city in Europe, it'd be the dirtiest city there, bar none. And if Newfoundland was a country in Europe, the dirtiest country in Europe, it's ridiculous beyond belief here. I mean, curiously, some big cities will have pockets that are really quite destitute and dirty and the like. But if you reference big cities like New York City, by and large, pretty clean place. Now, you will see uh, obviously lots of spots where, oh, my God, there's big piles of garbage. And they, they collect garbage differently than we do as well. But, yes, St. John's, unfortunately, for me, and I say it all the time, is that I just find it unnecessarily dirty. And we can blame it on the city for not cleaning up or what have you, but what gets lost in that conversation is personal responsibility. Nobody sold you a coffee cup to throw it on the ground. No one sold you a burger wrapper to throw it on the ground. You know, so absolutely. I don't know why. We, we'll point fingers at, what's the city doing? What's Happy St. John's doing or clean St. John's doing when in fact boy people just got to knock it off <laughs> oh yeah it's remarkable yeah well it goes hand in hand okay if you can't stop them from throwing the garbage around then okay I gotta say what are the workers getting paid for when's the last time you've seen a city worker bending over or out picking up garbage well I have not in, in fairness I, not. I, I went for a walk around the lake uh, one day last week and I did see in fairness a couple of city employees not only emptying out the garbage bucket but picking up in a, about a 20 foot circumference around it so I thought good job boys didn't say anything to them because you know what am, I, what am I supposed to say but I thought they did a good job there and plus if we leave it simply to the city they'll be till August cleaning up after the snow recedes so we're going to let well then if they're not, I know there's a lot of garbage and now it can't be picked up. Okay, I think that it is what it is. You gotta call it the way it is. The union, the workers have got no fear of getting fired because of the union is so strong. The union gotta go and it gotta be privatized like it is in Alberta and so on. You will not find no garbage out there blowing around. I tell you, I kid you not. Because if a private company got this, taken over the company don't do its job what happens the company goes and the company is hired and the workers don't do their jobs the workers are fired it's a vicious cycle but it gotta stop and i think uh there's many ways of stopping it i mean they've got no fear no fear of getting laid off because the union's behind them and the city backs down when the union stands up for their workers 
I even hate to call them that. When the city stands, the, the union stands up for the workers, the city backs off. And you cannot walk 10, 10 steps anywhere in the city without some form of garbage. It's ridiculous. And, I mean, you can say, well, the people are throwing around the garbage. Yes, they are. But then what are the workers getting paid for? And, yes, it'll take them a long time to do it. But uh, every time I see them workers, they're driving around with brand new pickup trucks. Uh, driving by the garbage. Well, I mean, there's, there's a bit right. to that now. Like, for instance, even in the winter when you see snowplow going around with snow on the ground but the blade up and p- people, whether it be working for the city or the province, driving by things that they could pick up, whether it be a washing machine in the median on the outer, outer ring road or a Ridiculous. tip bag on Elizabeth Avenue. So, yeah, I suppose everyone's role, regardless of your job description, if you're working for the city and you come upon a bit of garbage, whatever it might be, you know, if it's from needles to coffee cups, Picking it up is not a bad idea. I try to pick up garbage when I see it. I don't go around with a bag uh, attached to my belt loop all the time, what have you. But we do some neighborhood cleanups and stuff, and I know lots of neighborhoods do exactly that. And, you know, even when it comes to how the garbage gets blown around, it's fine for a business or anybody else to have a receptacle up by the door, but you got to empty it. You know, you just can't have it over the rim, and it's blown all over the place all the time. So I think there's lots of reasons as to why the garbage is the way it is, or the litter, the scene is, the ugly oh, sight yes. that it is. It's ongoing. It's getting worse. Yeah. I've never seen it so bad. Like, the town is just garbage and litter blown around. you walking all the time through St. John. Uh, you can't walk any distance at all, and there's some form of garbage but I don't see nothing getting done about it. I mean, I know you can say, well, but <clears throat> if you're driving around all the time or standing around, I mean, something got to be ordered. And it starts with the top. I mean, the supervisors, I'm sure they're not getting out of their trucks. They cannot be because this has uh, been sliding now for way too long. And it, it starts at the top and down to the bottom. But the supervisors and the foreman, foreman and supervisors and so on are not doing their jobs. Uh, Definitely not, because they'd be saying, what's on the go here? And where is everybody? What, where are they? Like, uh, I don't see them working. I really don't. I mean, I'm coming down on them for a reason. And this is my first time phoning in and probably my last time, but it's just... Uh, Why is it going to so be your bad. last time? <laughs> what's that? Why is it going to be your last time? Well, no, I don't mean to put it like that, but, I mean, it takes a lot to get me raw up. And this has gone on too long. It really has, and I had to uh, phone in to say, like, something got to change here. It's ridiculous. Down around, uh, i got friends. We've been all over the world, um, every city in Europe and country, and we don't agree on everything, but we certainly agree on this is the dirtiest city we've ever seen. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's out of control. Out ulti- of control. Ultimately, I just wish it was cleaner. With all the different components that lead to it being as dirty as it is, you know, I think we address them all and clean up our act, take a bit of pride in place, which seems to be lacking. If you see someone driving down the road and out goes the fast food bag, you know, obviously uh, that's that's part of the still. contributing problem as well. I appreciate the time, still Fred. The Call again. Listen, uh, appreciate it, Patty. Uh, great talking to you. Great show. And, uh, all about hopefully something will get done about this and and soon because it's really embarrassing uh, it really is it's gone appreciate the time call again all the best okay fred
Bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Now, in Charlottetown, within the last week, the folks at Canine Therapy for First Responders in New Brunswick, they donated a uh, golden retriever, beautiful animal, to the Charlottetown police called Captain Canine. Why? For mental health services. One of the quotes, it's not a fix to their mental health, that being the rank and file and the members of the community, but it's an awful good Band-Aid. In this province, Jim Hines took on all the cost to train, to buy, and to put uh, Stella in service at the RNC and with Constable Krista Fagan. And now what? That's gone, bo- that's gone away. Jim Hines, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the, the fellow, as I mentioned before the break, that was behind purchasing, training, providing Stella, the mental health services dog, to the RNC is Jim Hines, and he joins us on line number five. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Best kind. How about you? Pretty good, Patty. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, Patty, there uh, with the Charlottetown Police Force had just introduced a nine-month-old retriever called Captain Canine. And uh, I read the article about that, and it really... You know, struck me. You know, the shame in what's happened with uh, with Stella and what they say. What the you know the Charlottetown Police Force said. You know, he will support the officers, and then he will go out into the community and not just support the victims. He'll do community events. You will see him at things like daycare, seniors' homes. He'll be visiting institutions and just bringing happiness. Uh, they also said that Charlottetown Police Force was one of eight applicants for this dog, right? And they didn't make a statement or call it a mascot. You know, it, they get it. The Charlottetown Police Force get it. And the RNC got it three years ago. I mean, we were leading the country with this program with Stella. I mean, uh, Bill Blair, the Minister of Public Safety, Federal Minister, I mean, he acknowledged the great work Stella was doing. I mean, has the demand gone? You know, it's mental health cure, no more seniors, no more vulnerable people. We know the difference in that. You know, my biggest concern when I funded this, this this program to the RNC was I knew that the man was huge. I mean, Lab City, you know, Newfoundland, all parts of Newfoundland and Labrador, there's a need for Stellas to help the vulnerable people in our society. I mean, uh, Lab City, there was a company up there that wanted to fund a Stella. That never happened. I mean, maybe this is a, a, an opportune time for, uh, you know, Chief Roach to reach out to the, the, the Chief of Charlottetown to understand, you know, the value of a dog therapy program and how to better understand about community policing and how it works. I mean, just because Chief Roach doesn't see any value in these programs doesn't mean that the community doesn't. I mean, the chief to want to talk, so uh, you mean to explain why Stella is not out in the community helping and saving lives, helping people. If he doesn't want to talk, you know, he's boss should. I mean, this is a government-run police force. You know, Minister Hogan is his boss. This is not a sense of, uh, you know, police investigation that, you know, they can't talk what they know, including politicians. This is a program that was introduced into the House of Assembly. And the minister has an obligation to the community to explain why Stella is not working in our community to help with mental health and vulnerable people in our society is absolute shameful and disgraceful. Well, I don't disagree at all, Jim. You know, when the chief referred to Stella as simply a mascot, it displayed a couple of things to me. Either a distinct misunderstanding of the importance of the role Stella played in the community and inside headquarters, or two, just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Neither one's make, one makes any sense to me. I saw Stella's work up close and personal, as well as Constable Fagan. And you know, if the reference was, well, we'll bring Stella into headquarters to do more and more work with our own rank and file. I don't even think that's happening. 
No. No, I mean, you know, and, and this is a police week, too, you know, and Chief Ro- Roach made a statement saying the RNC is a police-driven organization that's committed to work in com- with, with community partners. I was a community partner for a stronger, safer, and healthier community. I mean, he's saying one thing in the statement, and his actions are totally 180 of that. Well, you contrast how Chief Roach has handled this particular issue versus what seems to be much more a celebratory tone. And they're so thankful that as one of eight applicants, Charlottetown's police force has now got Captain Kane on this beautiful golden retriever in the ranks. Now, I know it's still working towards Justice Law Enforcement Facility Dog Certification, but they got him, and they're thrilled. And we had him, uh, we had Stella, now gone, and I think it's really, really created a gap in the community. I know personally, of, I'll just say off the top of my head, a dozen or organizations that had applications into the RNC for Stella to make an appearance at one of their events or one of their meetings or whatever the case may be, and every single one shot down across the board, and it came out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely shameful. I mean, like, they, you know, if you really think about it, where do you think Charlottetown got this model of success that was, you know, was leading the country? He's seen it right here. I mean, we were leading in the whole country. I mean, Stella had followers all over, all over the world. People have reached out to Stella and but the great work that was being done with that for our community. I mean, and, you know, it's been, been a year now since uh, Stella's up to the union. It's been a while since she's doing anything at all, you know. And that demand, Patty, has increased in our community tremendously. I mean, every single day, on every part of media, whether social media, around television and paper, you hear about the increase in mental health in our community. And what a shame it was to have this happen. Now, you know, we were leading the country, and now we're, we're years behind. And, 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 you know, and the minister, he needs to come forward and explain how this happened. I mean, this is, like I say, as a government police force. He's the boss, and he got to stand up to this. He was bold in there, and he's paid by the people. He needs to stand up and be counted for. I think it stands to reason that the canine therapy for first responders in New Brunswick was formed directly because of what they saw happening in this province. I think that's a fair assumption to make, and I'll reach out to Tracy Ryan with that group. There was also some comments that came from the chief, which I think struck you the wrong way, as they did me. Is some reference to we can't have private citizens offering directives for operations at the RNC, when, as far as I can understand, you did nothing of the sort. No. I mean, the people have been you know, funding programs at the RNC for, for, for years and years and years. I mean, the mental health crisis units over there, those vehicles, they, they, they weren't RNC vehicles. They were donated. That stuff was donated. The horse trailer was donated. I mean, this goes on, you know, and for him to make statements like, well, we can't fund it ourselves, we don't need it. Well, I mean, that's a step back in the dark age. I mean, community policing is the future, and everyone else recognizes it, and we need to recognize it here. I mean, it's, it's the way of the future, and it's as simple as that. Jim, appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else this morning? Yes, Patty, one more thing before you go. Uh, Another program that I was involved with, of course, the equine therapy for Newfoundland ponies. And you hear some stuff the last couple of days about the ponies. Uh, I mean, I was funding the equine therapy for the ponies at Goldman House and at Rainbow Riders in, in the wintertime. Of course, that was another program scrapped by Chief Roach for, for no reason. Uh, but I will, I'll leave it on a positive note. Midnight, I... It's my pony now, and I've inherited a pony. I got dogs. Ponies are a different world, but 
he has he's going to work the summer. He's going to the Off Island uh, Winery out in Twillingate, which I'm very proud to say he's been out there with another pony. And he's going to be uh, showcasing the Newfoundland pony and showcasing what a, what a great animal he is. And he's going to put lots of smiles on kids' faces and seniors. So if you're out traveling around, go to the Off Island uh, Winery out in Twillingate and say hello to midnight, and uh, he'll put a smile on your face, I'll guarantee it. Sounds great, Jim. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Then, you know, just step back and think about it. If you have a private citizen or a private organization outside of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary willing to contribute money, time, and effort to making it better and the essence of community policing, I just don't understand how this happened. You know, if there was a concise reason that people say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. But I can't for the life of me figure out exactly what happened, period, here. And it came out of absolutely nowhere. Just prior to that, Krista and Stella being recognized by the Canadian Mental Health Association with an award for the work that they're doing, the recognition for how important it is, and then bang, gone. Uh, will I take Tony here, Dave? Okay, let's go to line number three. Tony, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Great, bye. How about you? Not bad. You looking for any worms or what? <laughs> Am I looking for what? Worms? Shed her all over the street down in Cancel Place down in Airport Heights. Is that right? I don't know what kind of phenomena is going on, but they're up out of the ground everywhere. I'm just going down to pick some. So you don't even have to buy them. What a time. Timing is great. So are these like the big night crawlers or what are you seeing? Oh, yeah. They're, some of them are big, some of them are small, but they're free. <laughs> Yeah, the East End has an issue with it as well. And the big slugs, I had one in the middle of my driveway yesterday, looked like a snake. Um, I've never seen that like it before. I don't know what's going on. There's a couple of things like that that are kind of uh, catching me off guard. The worms, which is absolutely part of the East End as well. But this year, like never before, all the seedlings that came down off the maple trees are in my gardens in the cracks in the patio stones like I have never, ever seen before. I'm going to say just in my regularly sized East End backyard, uh, no exaggeration, I got a thousand seedlings that have taken root that I got to deal with this weekend. Brutal. Yep. I went into Tim Hortons and got a cup and just got enough now to go trout in a week, and be honest with you. Yeah, and Dave Williams just said, and he's probably right, it's about how the temperature has worked with the rain, and now all of a sudden we've got this particular issue, but it's kind of gross no matter how you slice it. But anyway, I just had to let you know. I appreciate the time. Go get yourself some worms. All right, buddy. I got them. Attaboy. See ya. Thank you. Bye-bye. There you go. The worms are out and about. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Jerry Earl. Of course, he's the president at NAEP. And I think this is about the issue that we've heard where the province now with a one-year pilot has instituted a mental health non-crisis call line for first responders. Right after this, Jerry Earl. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, first of all, I'm calling just to say thank you. I listened to your preamble this morning. I'm uh, commuting from central Newfoundland back towards St. John's. And I heard you talk about uh, this warm line uh, mental health support that's been put in place for first responders, in particular EMS. So my first thing is to say thank you, because we need advocates such as yourself uh, putting this out there uh, so that EMS personnel across Newfoundland, Labrador, and every community can ear off this existence. Uh, 
And that's something that's coming about, Patty, probably about two years ago, NAEP advocated for a working group, you've heard me say before, include frontline workers to identify what the issues are, uh, and they will help you find solutions. So we established a provincial committee uh, because of the issues that was there. I sat on myself along with a deputy minister and frontline paramedics to listen to them about their concerns. And, and a lot of it came about from the issues in EMS. Uh, but mental health became a very key one, and rather than have it on the agenda of the overall provincial committee, a subcommittee actually got struck that dealt with nothing but the mental health issues that were identified and the lack of supports for first responders and specifically paramedics. And they'd done a survey, and uh, unfortunately, sometimes bureaucrats and officials got to see things in writing and got to see statistics to take actions uh, I, I did not need to see a survey to know what was happening. Uh, and sometimes I've said you got to walk the shoes of individuals to understand the issues. Uh, and it's a profession that I could say I walk the shoes in. And, uh, and I know what the lack of supports uh, have done for many paramedics and the, the mental health injury has caused. And Because one question was alarming, and I think it opened the eyes of many people when they asked, uh, how would you rate the level of mental health support provided to paramedics in the province? It got a rating of 3.89 out of 10. Uh, and I think that opened the eyes of many people in decision-making roles. And this action now, this warm line that's going to be in place, which a paramedic or a first responder can call up, talk to one of their peers that understand what they're going through uh, is a significant step. And now telling first responders about it is a key piece. So that's why I want to say thank you for mentioning that this morning because we need people such as yourself getting this message out there because a lot of paramedics, uh, and this is not, a, this is not just a NAEP issue. This is uh, every paramedic, whether a union person, a non-union person, private or public, uh, this is absolutely essential uh, for paramedics, first responders in Newfoundland, Labrador, long overdue much needed and I'm quite pleased to see it actually come to fruition now for these invaluable professionals across Newfoundland Labrador. Yeah, I mean I think it's a very wise move and I think the point I was trying to make, I don't know if it came through, was when we talk about issues like this, it's how long it takes ambulance to arrive, where the dispatcher yeah. is, where the hub is, and the time to offload and all these types of things and the consultations about trying to consolidate 60 units. What we sometimes don't think about or talk about quite as much much as we should, is the person who's on the ambulance. I mean, can you imagine, it might be your fourth or fifth call of the the day, and who knows, that paramedic that's responding to your emergency may have seen someone die three hours ago, you know, or yesterday responded to a highway collision where someone was maimed, or responded to a fire where there was someone burnt alive. So you don't really consider that because when we have our own immediate concerns and our own immediate emergency, of course, human nature leads us to think about me and me alone, versus now yep. knowing what they see, the baggage that they bring home, the toll on their mental well-being, and doing something about it. Because if we talk about hours of work and uh, on-call time and the rate of pay, and they might be leaving because of that, my goodness, they might be on the verge of leaving the profession every day just based on what they see. Absolutely, Perry. But that, and that's on out here now. Again, I, I always say go out and listen to people. That's what I've been in weeks now. And actually, again, just a meeting I've done that last night before. A young paramedic, a young woman, uh, and again, I had to actually leave the meeting and got up and said, Mr. O, I'm broken. I don't know how much longer I can go on. And that's really striking. Because like I said, you've got to walk to shoes some of these individuals and been there. And I know it's like when on the front line sometimes that support is not there. And 
unfortunately, the healthcare system, we've been saying for a long time, the EMS system, which is part of healthcare, is almost like it's forgotten about. We hear others talked about frequently, uh, but like you just said, Betty, like you got to realize most people in their lifetime don't experience a traumatic event. Uh, they don't see some of the things that these paramedics see, not daily, and, and pretty well daily. And some like you just said, Patty, like they just showed up at your house, but you don't know what they just dealt with before they got there, that traumatic incident. Uh, so these supports, they're known that they can pick up a phone and talk to somebody that understands. And there's other parts of this that we've done, like uh, this paramedics in parts of Newfoundland did not know uh, how who was there to support them, where they get support. So even something as simple as which Workplace and L, another thing that we've done, which has been talked about, is every paramedic in the province now will basically have a card in their wallet with that they know here's who you can contact, when you can contact them, and they will always be somebody there to assist them. So having these supports, because what these women and men experience, and I can speak to it firsthand, uh, nobody can comprehend. And they do this day in, day out, uh, during a career of 30 years or more, so you can only imagine the impact. And unfortunately, there are some paramedics, because of things they experience, they never work again. Uh, so these things are critical. And I just so I can again say thank you for highlighting that this morning so paramedics can hear about it in the rural communities that because now they know there's avenues there, at least just somebody to talk to. That's all you need sometimes. And, uh, this, and I know they talk about it as a pilot project. Uh, I assure you, as other organizations will, our union will be more or less pushing. This is not just going to be a pilot. We want this in place long term. It has to be. It will be beneficial. It will help paramedics. It'll help retain paramedics, which is critical, because if they feel supported, that's like this young woman said, if I knew I had support, I'd stay, but I feel I have none. And even talking about this, like just knowing this was helpful, saying I did not know this was happening. Uh, so using your avenues, uh, you have a, a quite a reach, and your voice, just like I said in the beginning, Patty, just mentioning that. Benefit, and more or less, I just want to call and say thank you for doing that. Well, happy to do it. Uh, so it's going to operate 12 hours a day, seven days a week, by six paid workers. Am I right in understanding that these six paid voices on the other end of the line would have lived experience as a first responder? That is my understanding and conversation we're exploring. Because, uh, again, and I know it's a pilot and it's trying to see. I even have, I'll be up front, I got a concern 12 hours a day. Paramedics work 24 hours, uh, seven days a week. So, what happens in those other hours? But that's conversations. Uh, I do applaud and say it's a significant step in the right direction. I always get fearful when something is pilot. I'm hoping it's pilot to prove its benefit because uh, we're certainly going to be having conversations uh, and educating paramedics to make sure they. It's, it's utilized so that we can keep it in place. It becomes greater in 24 hours, and it becomes much more than a pilot. Appreciate the time this morning, Jerry. Thank you, and I'm really pleased that this is getting up and off the ground. Should be in place by mid-June. Absolutely, and once again, thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure. Thanks, Jerry. Right, bye-bye. The Jerry Earl, President of NAEP. Before we get to the break, let's see what's happening on 6. Russell, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Um, I wanted to um, just put it out there that I lost some jewelry on Tuesday morning in the Avalon Mall between 9.30 and 10 o'clock in a little black velvet bag. It was a men's bracelet, 10-karat gold, a mariner chain, 14-karat gold with a 10-karat gold eagle on it, and a men's initial ring R with diamonds in it. I'd really like to have it back. No doubt you would. So uh, I'll give him a $500 reward. 
I don't care where they take it as long as I can have it back and I'll give them cash. So did you just sentimental value and I had it 30 years. And so you were carrying it around to bring it in for a cleaning or something? Or? No, no, no. I was going to Vancouver, and um, I was getting my phone hooked up at the Bell kiosk downstairs. And when I took my phone out to give it to her, I must have dropped it on the floor. Oh, man. Yeah. And I don't want uh, to ask you what the value of the jewelry mm-hmm. was, because that would probably dissuade someone who might be willing to bring it to some pond yes. well, operation. I've called them all. I call them every day, and I'm going to put pictures out. But I'm devastated. Describe the jewelry one more time. A men's bracelet, um, 10 karat gold, a mariner chain, 20 inches, 14 karat gold with a 10 karat gold eagle on it, and a men's uh, initial ring R with diamonds in it. Hopefully someone, and there's still honest people out there, so hopefully hopefully someone will do whatever is required to put it back into your your hands. So do you want to give your number? Do you want to leave it with David? Leave it with you guys. Okay, let's do that. All right. Fingers crossed. I appreciate it. Okay, Thank bye. you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I believe that's Steve Ryan, the mayor of St. Mary's. He's in the queue. We've heard from different municipal leaders and different communities that are waiting with bated breath to see if the snow crab fishery will be executed this year. Steve Ryan is one of them. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of St. Mary's. That's Steve Ryan. Mayor Ryan, you're on the air. Hello, Penny Harry, this morning. Best kinds. How you doing, Steve? Good, right, sir. Good. Mayor Ryan. Yeah, so look, we've heard from municipal leaders in a bunch of different communities from Triton and New West Valley and Bonavista, Vista. And just the stark contrast about your community in St. Mary's when you finally got another crab processing license, a parade, and now this. Paint a picture of what you're seeing. Oh, it's uh, sad. It's very sad to see uh, what's going on and uh, people in the community and uh, fishermen. You have some fishermen want to go and others don't want to go and it's, it's, it's starting to be people against people in the small communities and uh, and then where the, the union uh, suggested that uh, to ship some crab off I don't think that's a good idea either because you're shipping crab out of the province and taking away work from the, from the workers I know it's what they're trying to do try to make it a bit better and uh, for the fishermen but uh, we done that last year with issuing another license to uh, to this plant to give another option for uh, for sale, uh, hopefully down the road. Uh, but we got a cap on our quota uh, to start out. Hopefully down the road that that'll have to be lifted too, which will benefit the fishermen of Newfoundland with uh, more options for uh, seller crab. But right now, like I said, we had we had a, a success story here with get the plant up and running. And uh, new operators that came in uh, took a building that was falling into the ocean that would have been another cleanup uh, for the town, uh, besides the south plant. And uh, they made it a, a state-of-the-art building that's uh, director protected on all sides of the ocean. We, we're, so we have something here in Samaritan that I'd be proud of. You know, it's potentially devastating. So when you talk about people being pitted against people, are you seeing it, or is it happening in the grocery stores, or is it happening on the wharf, or what exactly are we talking about? Because some of it might be quiet animosity, some of it might be very vocal. No, uh, it's a bit of both. It's going to get worse because uh, when when, uh, the financial crunch comes, people are going to have to make very, very tough decisions. And uh, if you're if you're in their place, I feel for some of them. Uh, when you talk to them, they have bills to pay and uh, and big, big bills. Those uh, those boat operators have big bills. They uh, they just I was talking to a fisherman last night, 
just with the, with the interest rate going up, his uh, payment went up over $200 a month. Uh, just the past six months, uh, it's another $1,200 on top of, of everything else that he has to pay for. And like he said, it's getting to a point he would have had about six weeks catch landed right now on payments made. And he's getting into a predicament that like, you're forced to, to feed your family and, uh, and make payments. Uh, it's, a, it's a very tough decision. And then you have somebody that's probably a little bit uh, more financially secure saying, we don't want to go and we don't dis- is an animosity there uh, no way no two ways about it there's a lot of animosity between friends and family and and uh, it's going to come down between plant workers and fishermen I, I just hope that this is fixed as Within the next 24 hours would be ideal. Uh, I had hope yesterday when the premier premier stepped in, and uh, I really thought it was going to be fixed. And uh, the community, you could see the uplift in the community just yesterday, knowing that the premier was involved. And then yesterday evening when the announcement was made, it was just uh, the wind was like that, everybody's sails again. Uh, uh, it's unbelievable, the, the feeling. Uh, the announcement now that the crab is going to open uh, be just the biggest announcement of us getting our license last year. And, you know, for people who might even be not even directly involved, just kind of sitting on their cash, next thing you know, it becomes a bit of a groundswell. Everyone gets nervous. Then, consequently, the grocery store, whatever other shop or the bar or the restaurant, people just anxiously and nervously standing back thinking, well, I better not get too carried away with what I'm spending here because this community could be in a bad spot in six months from now. So it has wide-reaching impact, regardless if you have anything to do with fishery. Well, prime example is me. I'm a store owner. Yep. I was uh, keying up, keying up, making, uh, we're doing renovations, we're stocking up, we're, I supply some boats, I was getting all ready, 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 everything is here, and uh, all of a sudden you have to stop, because there's only so much, a lot of the stuff you're, you're stocking up as perishables, it's only so far you're able to stock that, you, like, uh, just what I was at this morning, looking at uh, putting on a, on a special here Friday to get clear some of the perishables, because if they don't go fishing, I, I'd rather sell it off for what I got it for than to dump it. And uh, if it don't, uh, nothing happens next 24, 20, 48 hours, I have to make some tough decisions myself on what I'm, where am I going to go with, say, stock-wise. And, uh, and when it happens, I'll just have to, uh, to make ends meet until the stock comes back for the supply of the boats and, and uh, the fisher people herself and the plant workers. And we, we do, like I said, it's out there. We have some... Uh, some uh, workers in for Mexico. Those people had to be looked after too, and the same thing, I uh, stock for those people, and they, they, they have different uh, different requirements than we do, and, and we're sourcing, sourcing different items for them. And if uh, this don't happen, I don't need those items that are coming from out of province, and some tough decisions are made on, on every level. And I don't like to be hyperbolic on this type of stuff, because it's all bad enough, but there's some real life circumstances and real big decisions, not only made as a retailer, but as an individual, one of the ladies quoted in the story, Shelley Tobin, she thought maybe get a chance to work in the crab plant, which would keep her in St. Mary's, as opposed to driving in and out from town. She says, if this doesn't happen, maybe she's going to move to St. John's. And I think similar comments have come from the sea and Triton and other communities where people say, well, if I'm not going to get to work here, i got to go somewhere else. Consequently, communities that are already struggling with population and the uh, tax base, populations that are already struggling with the aging demographic, this could be brutal long term. 
Oh, definitely. Well, uh, the situation with uh, Miss Tobin is about another 20 in that same situation. They did work in the plant, say, seven or eight years ago, and when the plant ceased in operation, a lot of them uh, went into construction in St. John's, and they all drive back and forth every day. And with the price of gas now and just repairs on vehicles, uh, uh, they're just driving back and forth just to get, get enough hours for EI. That's what they're doing. And when this announcement came at the plant, <coughs> this was uh, just as big for those people people as it was for the community and our town right now uh, was coming to the point where it was uh, all the houses were were dormant for the past 10 years now they're being sold uh, there's a lot of excitement here and uh, houses are being sold uh, even the town council ourselves we're making plans for uh, for uh, the next three or four years with uh, with some different monies to help the, the town with all the influx of new people and what we're hearing tell of, like, say, probably next year, we could have issue with the markets if this don't happen this year. The long term that we're looking at is, is going to affect our long term planning, too. Before we run out of time here this morning, Steve, because I really do hope that something comes of all of this. And again, not even in the world of hyperbole or sensationalism, this is complicated. It's not just about outside buyers. It's not just about the price per pound. It's not just about the percentage of the market share. It's about everything. And, you know, this year it's going to have to be simply, are people willing to fish or not? And then for years to come, can work on the structure because that's not going to change this season, as been painfully pointed out by all sides. Uh, very quickly, mentioning the fish sauce plant, which I brought up off the top of the show again. That was the number one concern. Now I've been, of course, uh, overmatched by snow crab. But the problem there, just to refresh people's memory, Environment Canada came in and had a look at it back in 2016 and found out that all the fish that were exposed to the effluent died within 15 minutes. No one told you. No one told the community. The plant has been dilapidated for a couple of decades. It stinks to high heavens. Any move on that front? Yes. Uh, I never called in with no updates because we never really had none. But as of this, as of five o'clock this evening, we had uh, we have three t- three tenders uh, on the consulting work with the plant, and we're, by the end of the day today, we're going to know who we're going to be working with as a consultant firm in drawing up uh, an impact plan on cleaning up the building. And we're after working closely with the provincial government, which I, I got to reach out. The environmental department after being really good, Mr. Davis's department. And it's a slow process. It's slower than I want and, and the people want. But we want to do it right this time and get it actually cleaned up. After this, this part of the process is over, we're going to know what we need to do with everything. And then we're going to go to tender with the cleanup companies doing their bidding. Do we know who's going to cover cost? Uh, the part of the consulting is covered by the provincial government. And then we got to go. We're looking for federal funds for the for the major cleanup part. Any type of quasi commitment from the federal government on that front? Because it's not going to be cheap. No, no. The only, only thing was our MP did say that they feel that they are responsible for what was done and they should pay for it. That's what our, what our MP said. So we're going to hold him to uh, to his word. And uh, once we get uh, gets the figure, we'll we'll be certainly talking to Mr. Kemi Donald. Yeah, no doubt. Because I think the argument is pretty. Clear. If Environment Canada came in to do this piece of work, then obviously the federal government uh, seems to have some responsibility. So you can't have it both ways. Can't be half pregnant here. Oh no, they have a, they have a lot of responsibility of this size. A lot. Uh, Steve, or pardon me, Mayor Ryan, it's good to have you on the show. Hopefully things turn out for the best for you and every community relying on this fishery. Uh, thanks for thanks for making time. Yeah, you're welcome, Patty, and I'll keep you updated on the sauce plant. Yeah, please do. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. That's Steve Ryan. He's the mayor of the town of Saint. Mary's. Let's take a break for the newscast. Don't go away.
Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Andrew, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Hello. How are you doing, Patty? Doing okay. How about you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, yeah, I was calling this morning because um, I wanted to mention um, there was a woman that called in a couple of days ago talking about Fiona and how people haven't received the funds and stuff from that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mine is a little different. Uh, I'm originally from Port of Bass, too, and I had to move here a couple of months, well, two months and three weeks ago. Um uh, because I'm critically ill, uh, the services that I need are not provided in Western, Central, anywhere like that. So I have to be with my hematologist and my uh, internal medicine specialist and things like that. And uh, so I had to move here. And I moved here with, uh, well, what I had, I had to sell, you know, to try to have something for when I get here until I found a, you know, a job or whatever. But unfortunately I cannot work. I'm off work. I'm sick. And, uh, yeah, I was basically, uh, I had a bed chair room for two months, uh, which was just sleeping on a air mattress on a floor, which eventually de- deflated. So I just slept on the floor and now I moved into an apartment, uh, May 1st. And that is literally me sleeping on a floor until uh, out of all days, Mother's Day, my mom offered, like she said, like, I can't have you sleeping on the floor anymore. You're too sick. And um, I've contacted a lot of people, um, like every MHA, MP, um, like it, it doesn't matter. No one's gotten back to me, the ones that have. So there's there's no program for this. There's no pro- So to me, why would you bring someone here stick them in an apartment and just make them sicker. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no funding for furniture. There's no funding for anything. And I only get 154 50 every two weeks. I can help you get some furniture. How can you help me get furniture? Well, I, I know people and I know organizations that do things like this and I can work on it for you. I mean, I can't promise you a, a king size bed and a Ritz Carlton duvet or a velvet couch or anything, but I can probably work on some furniture. Yeah, because um, the wait list to the furniture bank, the thing is people are now like with the state of the economy. They're trying to sell everything. People aren't donating as much as they used to, right? So I'm on a wait list for six and a half months. And I was like, well, I'm sure like there must be local stores because they can just use it as a tax write-off, right? Like, Possibly. If, possibly, yeah. So I, I, I didn't know, like, I mean, I don't even have a fork to eat with, like, and it's been almost three months. And, like, it's it just feels like I've been brought here to die kind of thing. You know, like, I've tried every route you can possibly imagine. And uh, it doesn't seem to be going my way at all. Well, I'm really sorry to hear about the circumstance and your health. Uh, Do you have access to a a computer anywhere, Andrew? 
Uh, all I have is my phone. I had to sell my computers. Okay, so do you have a data package on your phone where you can send me an email? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's try that. And I can't promise anything, but what I can promise is I'll try. So if you send me an email with just some bare necessities that I might be able to try to round up for you, I'll get at it. Oh, really? Yeah. That would be awesome, actually. Yeah, because... I can guarantee I get you some cutlery and some of the very basics. There's no doubt about it in my mind. So if you send me an email, my address is a really simple one. It's just openline at vocm.com. I will uh, chip away at it and do what I can as quick as I can. Yeah, and like uh, before, too, I know like uh, there was another thing you were talking about, like all the scams that are on the go and stuff like that right now, right? Uh-huh. So. Even when I do turn to furniture stores and ask if they would make a donation, they would always say no because – or not respond to me at all uh, because, you know, this the whole, you know, what if they're just going to take it and sell it online or something like that kind of thing, right? And it was the same with GoFundMe. Like I tried one of those. Again, nothing because just I'm new here. Uh, no one knows me. I have nobody here. It's just me. Where, you're I in the city, right? You're in the city, right? Yep, I'm downtown. Okay. Uh, right, uh, Gower and uh, Colonial. So, it's like, close to St. Clair's Hospital. That way I can get there if, you know, I do... Uh, take really sick some night, right? Well, Andrew, while we're speaking here, I have a double bed with sheets and a duvet for you. Oh, okay. Sweet. That's a good help. I'll work on getting it organized, picked up, and dropped off. I'll do that. I don't know how quickly that can happen, but I'll try to do it as quick as possible. So that's a good start. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, well, that was a lot more than anyone in the last three months has been able to do. Well, <laughs> hopefully we can do a little bit more. Uh, so please do send me that email with your address and your telephone number, and uh, we'll try to figure this out. Thank you so much, Patty. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Good luck. Words cannot express how happy that makes me. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it, and uh, let's see what we can figure out. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. Take care. Talk to you soon. Okay. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Andrew. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two. Harold, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I got a, I've got a situation, too, here. Now, I'm a senior, right? And... Uh, I worked for 47 years, and my wife worked for 45 years. Three years ago, my wife passed. She had cancer 10 years before that. She got she got better of it, well, went in the remission more or less, and she went back to work, worked another 10 years. Paid in pensions. We all have worked here all our life. Mm-hmm. And anyway, when she, when she passed, that was back in 2019, that's three years ago. My pension was cut to $18,000, a little over $18,000 a year. Okay. $18,000 a year. That's what my pension, I probably lost in pension since my wife passed. As far as I'm concerned, you were talking the other day talking about scammers. The only scammers in my life is government. As far as I'm concerned, they scam pensions. That's what they've done. They actually scam pensions out of me. I mean, we work for our, for what we, you know, we got. I'm here now. I can't even, I'm not even getting enough. I, I have to dip into our savings every month because I'm not getting enough pension. I was living pretty good before that because my wife, you know, she was getting her pension, I was getting mine. And I'm sure there's a lot of seniors, it happened to a lot of seniors like myself. And, and you know, you, and you're talking about the serve money they brought in the same year my wife passed. 
And all I got was papers in the mail telling me I must pension that was going to be cut. I never received no third money whatsoever. Okay, so uh, just so I understand, Harold, what's the relationship between your pension and CERB that you're making? I'm sorry. Pension? I mean, CERB? Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I don't get, I don't get two thousand dollars a month now. The pension. Oh, you're, so you're comparing what you get to what the CERB did? Okay. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not worrying about the CERB too much. I, I just, just mentioned it to you. I mean, the government's bringing in people from all over the world, and then putting them up in partners and setting them up. That's fine. But, you know, like, I worked all my life, 47 years, like I said, and the boy worked 45. And you end up far as I'm concerned, they cut your pension like that? It doesn't make sense. You know. Well, I mean, what I do know is that that amount of money that you have coming in the door is pretty meager when you look at what everything costs in this world. Yes, so, I'm saying I got to dig in my savings now and just try, you know, just pay the bills. I still live in my own home, but I, I can't even take money like a, for do repairs to my home or nothing. Right? Right. I wouldn't have the bottom of the government at all for anything if they wouldn't have took the pension from me. They're cutting my pensions, right? You know. So your pension got cut, so no survivorship benefits, or what was the rationale for the cut that you experienced so quickly? I'm sorry? Well, the rationale was that what we got between my wife and me, we were making, you know, we were getting pensions up around, you know, around 40000 a year, $45,000 a year, right? Uh-huh. And since all this pension has been cut, now I'm, I'm down below, I, I, I don't get anything. You know, I done passed the, the number where I don't get no spousal allowance, I don't get no, you know, GST, I don't get, I'm just below the, that limit, right, you know? And besides, yeah. you know, I think it's, I think it's just a bit ridiculous myself, you know, and I'm not the only senior, because I heard seniors talking about it, hey, you know, and I heard you talking about it, you know, on online two years ago about it, right, you yeah. know? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's just scanning money out of people. That's all. I mean, they, should, they shouldn't be able to. You shouldn't be able to cut me. They cut her, or she paid into a public sector pension, which cut twice on me now since she died. Twice. You know. And so, this public sector pension, are we simply talking about CPP? No, he wanted to cut the CPP too. The public sector pension she paid into, which you work for the, the government, right? Do you qualify for the guaranteed income supplement or old age security as well? Yes, oh yes, yeah. And so all of that, all included, adds up to 18000 Yes, yeah. They cut her CBP and, uh, and her old age pension, well, they lost that all together completely, right? And then they cut her public sector pension twice on me. Come down to over $18,000 a year in the last three years since she died, I've mean, lost over fifty, around $55,000. I'm sorry for your loss and sorry for your struggles. Is there anything that uh, you want to ask me that I can ask someone else, or is there anything that you think I can do? No, I just want to get the point out, you know, to people and, and the government to know, because I know they're listening, right? That's what they're doing to people that worked all their life, you know, and then they retired. And here I is now. I'm 72 years old, and I need a hip replacement for to go back to work. And I can't seem to get in and get it done. I've been waiting over a year now for a hip replacement. How old are you, Harold? I'm 72. And you need to go back to work. I mean, that's just, that says it all right there. Yes, doesn't it? You know, after working for 47 years, you know. My wife was retired. After five years, she died after she retired. You know. That's what's going on in this. That's what's going on these days. You know, you got to come out and talk about it because, you know, you got to get it off your chest, right? Yeah, you know. 100%, and I'm glad you called. Okay, thank you. I wish you well. Thank you for listening. My pleasure, Harold. Take care. Yeah, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about something regarding Newfoundland power and medical transport and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. John, you're on the air. 
Yeah, good morning. Um, So in September of 2022, um, some people noticed that their clocks went ahead by five minutes, uh, by the clock by itself went ahead by five minutes. Yeah, it happened in my house. Right. Okay, great. Um, It happened to me too. And when it first happened, I thought my clock was broken because it was an old clock and I was almost going to throw it out. But then I heard on another radio station on the following Monday that a lot of people had had that same experience. So I knew then it wasn't my clock. Um, Then what happened again in about a month ago around april 15 or 16 they went ahead again now i'm not going to say how many minutes on air and there's a reason for that because if anybody else experienced their clocks going ahead around the middle of april i would like them to call your station and tell you know tell you guys exactly by how many minutes the clock went ahead, okay? And that'll prove that theirs also went ahead in middle of April. Now, I've spoken to a few people at random about the April incident, and so far, nobody has remembered it, but that's only been a few people. So with, with the airwaves going out to a lot of people, I'm hoping someone will. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I believe the official explanation by Newfoundland Power is not the real reason behind this. Well, the explanation came from Hydro, because they'd be the people responsible. Newfoundland Power is just distributing the power. Oh, okay, okay, so my mistake, right. No, okay. I'm, I'm not being a stickler. Just because hydro <laughs> yeah, generates the power, which caused what they said was a system balancing issue with a period of high frequency, if I remember right, how they yeah. described it. I heard something like that. Apparently, it was either too much power or too little power um, in the system. Now, there's a few reasons why I don't think that, and number one is because this particular clock that I've had, I've had it since the 1980s. It's a very accurate LED clock, and um, apparently, they all keep time by uh, the 60 hertz method so for every pulse of electricity they count one second and um, as long as you know as long as there's nothing wrong with the uh, power grid system most of those clocks are very accurate and especially mine like I said I've had it since the 1980s and most years it stays very accurate to like within a second or two throughout the entire year whereas by comparison my digital watch which runs on a battery loses a couple of seconds every few days right so there's a huge difference but um, but but the point is this clock I've never had anything like this happen with this clock, and I've never heard of anything like this happening before any time, and I've been around for over half a century. So, so that's number one, you know, if, because there are power surges anyway. There are power deficiencies and power surges throughout the year on any given day just because of luck. Some people use their lawnmowers more, or their washer or dryer more, refrigerators more or less, depending on the circumstances. So if it was because of a power deficiency or power surge, I think it would happen more often. That's number one. But number two, both of those incidents, the one in late September 2022 and the one in the middle of April, both of them happened after I did something particular that I think the person who's been electronically uh, cyber hacking me in various ways in the last couple of years. Now, this person I know very, very well, okay? And this person has been monitoring me in a number of different ways. It is all possible to do because I did the research on it through various types of technology. He's been monitoring me, not just my computer or my phones, but he's also, I believe, hacked into some Wi-Fi security systems in various neighborhoods that I've been or traveled to. And anyway, I believe that he saw either through a Wi-Fi hacked camera near the post office when I mailed a particular letter or he hacked into the Canada Post website. Either way, I sent a registered letter explaining my various allegations of various types of cyber crimes against him. I sent it to a particular law enforcement agency in North America. That's all I'll say on air about that now. I'm not going to get specific which agency, but I sent it by registered mail. 
Now, that was around, in fact, in fact, I know which day it was. That was on the Tuesday, right after the Queen's, uh, the Queen's uh, funeral, because Monday was a holiday in September because of the Queen's funeral. So I wanted to send it on the Monday, but that was a holiday, so Canada Post was closed, as was a lot of other stuff. And so I sent it the very next day, which was the Tuesday. So that would have been around September 23rd. Summer's around there, give or take a day. So I sent that letter by registered mail. Then a few days later... That happened. Now, with the clock thing also, what happened, I noticed at first that it was about a minute. So on the Thursday or the Friday, just a few days after I mailed that letter on the Tuesday, so this would be like within two or three days of that, I noticed my clock was ahead by one minute. Okay, just just before we go any further, what do you think this actually has to do with a widespread experience when Newfoundland Hydro says they were responsible because of my I believe he hacked the power grid. That's what I believe. That's why it affected everyone. I believe he hacked it to give me a sign that he knew that I sent the letter that's number one. And then, by the way, first it happened one minute and then four minutes on the next day. So it was either one minute on the Thursday, Friday, or one minute on the Friday, and then four minutes on the Friday or the Saturday for a total of five minutes before the end of the weekend. So now, he's taunting you through hacking into a utility grid? That Through many, many ways. This is just his latest method. He, he uses various MOs. Now, the other thing is, when it happened in April last, uh, last month, about a month ago, it also happened after I did something similar. In April, um, I, I got the dates right here, uh, between April 7 and April 10, I sent five emails to the RCMP, okay, to the National Security Threat Office at the RCMP. I sent them five emails total over the course of those days between April 7 and April 10. Then less than a week later, again, around April 15 or 16, my clock went ahead by one minute again. I believe it was him seeing my email because he was in my computer, hacking my computer. He saw that I sent it, and then he once again gave me a message, but this time he didn't want to, oh, I just gave it away. Did I I just say by how much the clock went ahead this time? I think so. But, oh, sh- you know, oh, sorry. so maybe he's uh, hacked into my microwave too because I've disparaged Hydro on the show. I, I don't Look, I don't know what's going on. I do know that cybersecurity is a major league concern. You know, getting the Meditech system, and I don't think this is outlandish to talk about the jeopardy, what, I mean, happening in the United States with a pipeline and the control systems. Exactly. So Any, I don't know what's going on yeah, here, but I'll give you just one okay, more minute to wrap it up. Just one thing. This person is an IT expert. He used to work for a phone company, has esoteric knowledge of various sorts in the IT field and so I know that you know he's capable of these types of things and I know that um, all of the stuff that's happened to me um, in the last couple of years I know it's him because we had a disagreement in late uh, December 19th uh, sorry uh, 2019 in late December 2019 we had a disagreement and ever since then he's been he's been like doing the various types of hacking and by the way when I sent when I tried sending the first email on April 7 to the RCMP I was on their site typing it on their site and then m- that site shut down like as if somebody had hit the X on my screen and that's happened before on other sites I've been but on this new computer this new laptop it had never happened before in about a hundred hours of use and then the first time it happened that that a page closed by itself was that page to the RCMP. So All right. then I, so John, so eventually I, I, I did wonder, get the email, but okay. I, to them, but using using my email directly, not on their site. Okay. So I wonder why someone who was able to hack into something like that wouldn't be uh, willing to do something more nefarious. If they he had is, he is. I'm not going to make those allegations on the air now. I mean, I can tell you off here if you want. And no, that's is, okay. And this is why I sent the 
these letters. Uh, this is this is why I contacted several uh, law enforcement agencies, like including the RCMP and the other one that, that I said I was going to name. Now, I've I've contacted several different law enforcement agencies across North America okay. because these are very serious crimes that are that are international and a lot. Put it this way: a lot more serious than just hacking a power grid. A lot more serious. Appreciate your time this morning, John. Take care. Take care of yourself. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Uh, Marjorie, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Fine, thank you. Is it good to hear your hopeful line every morning? I appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for the call. What's on your mind? Uh, my, bro- my brother got a 90th birthday today, and I was wondering if I could put it on the here. Well, it's too late for me to say no now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Marjorie. Happy, happy 90th birthday to Donald Hurl Sr. of Shearstown from his baby sister Marjorie, brother Wes, and Scott and Kent. So, and we hope you enjoy your day. So did I do the math right there? There were six of you? Uh, six, uh, uh, yeah, it was, yes. How many was there at one point? Was there more than six, and you've lost some? Uh, no, wait, no. It's myself, yeah. my brother, Wes, yeah. and four. It's just four. Just four of you now, okay. Yes. So tell us a bit about your brother. Well, he's 90 years of age, and he's the, he's the oldest of 13 children, and I am the youngest myself, 73. Now, he's, uh, he's got his good mind. But now, like, he's, he finds his legs and that he's not able to get around on times. But other than that, he's perfect and he's in good health condition other than that, right? I'm glad to hear. What did he do all his life? Uh, he was a carpenter all of his lifetime and he was a good one. <laughs> I bet he was. So is there any party planned or are people able to get together? Uh, no, nothing now, because his wife deceased several years ago. Okay. And he's a type of person, like, you know, he just like to be home and he don't bother having any parties or anything like that, right? Sounds like me. I'm sorry, what's his name again, Marjorie? Don. Don? D-O-N, Donald Hurl Sr. Well, on behalf of everyone here at Open Line and at VOCM, we want to join you in wishing Donald the happiest of 90 birthdays, and I'm glad you called today. And thank you so much, and you have a good day. Same to you, Marjorie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Here you go. Happy birthday, sir. 90. Not bad, eh? Bye. All right, let's take a break for the 1130 News. When we come back, Rosalind, appreciate your patience. She wants to talk about medical transport. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Rosalind, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good to hear talk with you this morning. Happy to have you on. Um, listen, I was wondering, is there any type of program I can get to get medical transportation help? What exactly are you looking for? Well, any help to help with my transportation in the St. John's when I was in the sea, um doctors. Well, I was going back and forth now since September 2021. Because I had a retina detach on the eye, and I used to had to go, um, I had to go in and have surgery, and then I had to come out and then go back in and get checked every uh, eight weeks, and then afterwards, then I had to have uh, cataract surgery on both eyes, and um, was paying night well for uh, the taxi there in a night and I had to stay at a place in there 
and then you had to buy your go somewhere and get something to eat and I didn't know what was safe, where it was safe to to walk on the road if I was going to get stabbed or... Uh, Let's hope that yeah. doesn't happen. So, Rosalind, no. where, where are you coming into town from? Uh, I'm coming in from Tamp Bjorn. From Bjorn. Because there yeah. is a medical transportation assistance program. Have you tried to go through the government for some cost coverage? Because MCP will cover travel for specialised services, which I pretty sure includes the eye procedures you've had done. So have you tried? No, I never tried. Okay. And, that, and I was just more or less now wondering uh, um, what would be best uh, to try. So uh, my MCP should c- cover some of it? Possibly. You have to apply for it. There's a bunch of el- eligibility issues. I have a number if you want to call them. Yes, okay. Thanks, Daddy. No problem. So it's one eight seven seven. Four seven five. Okay. Two four. Yeah. Two four one two. Two four one two. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate your uh, information on that. Happy to do it. Good luck. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You have a good day now and uh, a safe and enjoyable weekend. Thank you very much, Rosalind. Same to you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, she should be able to get some help there. Let's go to line number two. Kay, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'm calling from Riverhead, St. Mary's. Welcome to the show. Love Riverhead. Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to mention the store, but the store into Galway, I purchased dog food, and here when I opened it, hypodermic needles came out of it. What? Hypodermic needles. I, ha- I was to a lawyer, and... Uh, I spoke to Consumer Affairs, and as I said, that they will uh, re, re uh, give me another bag. That's all they would do. Yeah, well, that's not really good enough because that could have gone horribly wrong. So this yeah, was a, a sealed package of dog food. Yeah, and now I got to go and have all that uh, blood work and that done for the hypothetical. Hypo- well, the AIDS and all that stuff, right? Okay, so when you consumer affairs and all that, what have you, did you contact the company? Uh, no, not yet, because uh, they're going to look into it. Yeah, I would. one thing for sure, I would definitely contact the company directly. Um, yeah. And other than that, I'm not really sure what to say. So a sealed bag of dog food. A sealed you, oh. bag of dog food, when I open it up to give it to my dog... Here, hypothermic needles fell out. I thought it was paper because it was black and white. So when I picked it up, here was the needles. And it's one of them small syringes. Okay. So, like I said, I I was to a lawyer yesterday, and I was talking to Consumer Affairs yesterday, and... I don't know where else to go or where else to turn. I'd go to the company for sure. That's one thing okay. I would do. And when it comes to whether or not they give you a, a replacement bag, that's just one thing. But sometimes like this, if it becomes a problem that is widespread or more, more than you, then maybe, just maybe, they might be forced to go down some recall road because that sounds pretty awful and pretty dangerous to me. So when you hang up with me, next call I would make is to the company itself. Okay, when I was to the lawyer yesterday, he said I was the third person to him the week about finding needles in dog food. Really? 
funny I haven't heard of it uh, from anyone else up until now, but let me, let me do this. I want you to speak to the newsroom as well, okay, Kay? Okay. So, Dave, can I put on hold and you can do something to get the newsroom to speak with Kay? Is that a possibility? Okay, I'm going to put you on hold. Talk to someone in the newsroom because then off air you can mention the company names and we can do some follow-up as well. And after you speak with them, please do indeed call the company. All right. Thanks a lot, Petty. No problem, Kay. You're on hold. Here we go. So we'll see if the newsroom wants to do some follow-up. So if it's three people that have already spoken to one lawyer, you know, it's got to be more widespread than that. That's bizarre. Let's go to line number four. Garbage uh, <laughs> caller, you're on the air. <laughs> Sorry. Hello. Hello there. Yes. What's on your oh. mind this morning? Oh, they were speaking on earlier in the morning about the the dirty city we have and whatever, the garbage around or whatever. Well, my outlook on that is that there is not enough of garbage containers put around the city for people to throw their trash in, especially the schools and different areas. And when you're out walking with your dog, there's no, you have to walk a long ways before you find a garbage container to dump your dog's stuff in the, in the garbage. So it, I think it would be uh, good for the city to put themselves together and start dispatching some garbage containers around the city, and maybe we could help to keep it clean. Yeah, I mean, nothing nothing quite like a garbage bin to throw your garbage in, and there's probably not enough of them out there, but it's not just putting the bin there, it's having the process in place to, uh, to empty it frequently, because when I go to whether it be a gas station or a fast food outlet or what have you, and you see a garbage container outside, and it's overflowing, that doesn't help either, so fair enough, you got to have somewhere to throw it, and that's, I suppose, it's not an excuse, but some people might indeed just throw it off to the side of the trail, or flick it in the woods because there isn't a garbage container close by, not giving them an excuse because they can very easily bring it home or wait till they uh, walk upon or stumble upon a garbage bin. Exactly, because in my car I do have a garbage bag there perfectly for that reason. If I have garbage, I put it in that bag. And like I said, you know, the garbage containers that are overflown, that's up to where we're sitting at, I would say, like the schools or somebody to call and have their garbage containers empty and let the city know that, you know, it needs to be done. Because this is why we have all the rotors and everything else climbing around our city, because it's not well taken care of. Our street right now, all the leaves and everything, you know, the street is filthy. And, uh, you know, and, and it's true what the people say, you know, you come in this city, oh, my God, you know, this is not very nice, especially you're coming from the airport and these places where you come from, boats, whatever. Yeah. We, we, we absolutely need to have some more garbage bins, and we can try and see what happens, you know, hopefully that people will understand that this is where the garbage do belong, not on the ground. <laughs> absolutely right. Right. You know, so even the young ones, I mean, I'm here by school, and I see kids going down the street. And they, they just you know flick whatever they got their bread or their, their containers or whatever on the ground you know no no such things picking up simply I would say because there's no nowhere to put the garbage. Yeah, I, I get that point, you know, and it's one thing to throw the heel of your sandwich on the ground versus right. the wrapper it came in, so, that's yeah. Right. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, that's my say for today. Now, whether it works or don't work, well, that's it. We try. I'm glad you took the time. Okay, honey, thank you very much. You're Have welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you never know what's going to pique the interest of anybody listening and consequently potentially uh, calling the show. 
But uh, again, yes, garbage bins, no question. The city or whatever municipality and their employees playing their role, absolutely. But I think we've kind of lost sight of the fact that it's the individual nuisance litter bug that is the massive problem. Yes, it might be a garbage bin shortage, but, you know, holding on to that empty coffee cup for just another few steps or another half kilometer before you come on a garbage bin, probably a better idea than just throwing it on the ground. It's not preaching or I'm far from perfect but these types of issues are absolutely manageable and a lot of what you see on the ground is completely unnecessary. Now if you put your trash in the bin and the wind took it and blew it all over the place well that's sort of on the people who are responsible for emptying the bin and at some of these places they've taken away the garbage cans you know private business they've taken them away why because they they absolutely had to put some horsepower or human resources into emptying them so, you know, that's not really much of an excuse either. So even if we're talking about some of the notable fast food outlets, are they even putting out the containers any further? I know some have taken them away. Why? Because it creates a mess on their property and someone has to be responsible for emptying them versus other duties while they're on shift. Anyway, final break of the morning. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Steve, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Petty. Good morning to you. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How about you? Great. Great, lively show. Lots of interesting content as usual. Um, more of a longtime listener, Petty, and I am indeed a first-time caller, but I could not bite my tongue any further. Um, just regarding a couple of the calls of, I assume, uh, residents of St. John's calling in about the garbage floating around the city, particularly this time of the year, I guess, as the snow melts. We've all seen it. I live downtown, all kinds of it down here. Here's a novel idea for everyone to consider. Two of your callers who spoke today, excuse me, very passionately about the idea that the city needs to do this or a private business needs to do that. I think that it's um, possibly uh, incumbent on each individual citizen to take responsibility for their own garbage. And sure, there are private businesses that offer food service or other types of retail service that may elect to put garbage cans out on their property to help with it. The city um, monitors, I guess, and collects garbage from various uh, cans around the city. Sometimes they do a good job of it, sometimes maybe not so good. I'm sure they're contained by some of the resources that they have. But here's another novel idea to support the idea why private citizens could kind of chip in and do this. I visited Japan a number of years ago, and while walking around several cities there, I accumulated garbage from a coffee shop or whatever I was consuming along the way. I asked several, excuse me, retailers where there was a garbage can, and they looked at me and said, no buy. You buy it, you own it, take it with you, it's your responsibility. Everyone here seems to complain about that we have a lack of municipal service to deal with X, Y, and Z. I mean, at the end of the day, Petty, we're all paying for this. The individuals that drive around, I guess, and collect the garbage or the individual uh, that is working at the McDonald's store, he is paid to take care of this garbage. And we have this kind of pervasive notion, I think, amongst ourselves that someone else should pick up our garbage force. And I think that's the problem. That's why people seemingly in my area downtown 
I see them every day. I saw them this morning. Chip wrapper, coffee cup, you name it. Not my problem. Get someone else to pick it up. Well, it's pretty pervasive thought in society anyway, isn't it, that everything is someone else's responsibility. And that's the point I was trying to make off the top is, you know, we can blame the person who sold you the the burger or the coffee or the bag of chips or what have you. It's not their fault. It's personal responsibility. People know better. They just become oblivious. And, well, someone else will clean it up. No, it's not anybody else's responsibility. You bought the coffee, drink the coffee, throw the cup in an appropriate garbage receptacle. How about that? Totally agree. And if there's not a receptacle there... Of course, like I said, the, the instance that I saw, and I know that's an extreme example and that that's a far-off land and a vastly different culture to ours. Um, but, yeah, just take some ownership for your own behavior, I guess, at the end of the day. And uh, it is absolutely shocking. And I, and I focus on the downtown. But it's because where I live, it seems where we get a lot of tourists in the city, Petty, and people talking about graffiti and the garbage and stuff around town. It is embarrassing, and the tourists are starting to roll in here. You see them on Water Street and Duckworth Street. Saw a full load coming in on icebergs, uh, the Ocean Quest iceberg boat the other day. And I just wonder what people think when they walk around town. Kind of embarrassing at the end of the day. That's all my thoughts. Well, I'm glad you called to share it, and mark my words. (laughs) <laughs> unless, unless people take some responsibility for themselves, it's not going to get better. Absolutely, Patty. We can all do a little bit better and maybe just start by suggesting to the young folks in your family and in your community um, that this is a problem. And I suppose if we can educate young people into it, maybe one of these days it will come full circle and people won't be so flippant to just toss it on the ground and think someone else is going to pick it up for you. Yeah, I don't know even if youth are the larger problem here, but one thing for sure is school property, before school is let out for the year, every single school should have a school cleanup with every single student participating because there is a lot of mess that comes from school property. Agreed. And and just a side note, certainly not trying to blame all the young people out there about it. I'm just thinking that if we educate them by the time they all become adults, maybe they won't be so dirty as the crowd as we seem to have within our community now. So, um, yeah, we can do better. I think we can all agree on that. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Good morning, Patty. Bye-bye. Here we go. Uh, fair ball. Uh, let's see here. Last call, very likely this morning. Line number two. Connie, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. I had to chime in on all this garbage stuff. I live in the East End as well, and um, lots of times we'll have lunch on Torbay Road, and I'll, I'll see I'll see the kids going to Irving and all those stores around that area. And they buy their lunch and they take it across the street to that big clearing that's there. And the garbage there is, and that's a city-owned property, I think, that walkway from McDonald Drive School over, over to Torbay Road. And the garbage there is absolutely atrocious. And I don't think it's really the kids' fault because there's no garbage receptacles there. And they can congregate there. I've seen as high as 100 kids there. And when they leave to go back to school, garbage there is absolutely horrible. And I think there are a couple of um, people that live in houses that are fenced butts that go down every now and then and clean it up. But why couldn't the city, and I'm not blaming the city, but why couldn't the city recognize that problem 
and put a couple of garbage bins there to be picked up at least once a week because the kids are not taking the garbage back to school. Yeah, and they should, and they should be encouraged. And they're dumping it. They're just dumping it there. You know, and uh, but I, uh, the city has planted trees all along Torbay Road. But do they ignore this? They got to see it. They got to see it because it's there for everyone to see. You know, it's just um, I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. Well, I saw it up close and personal. I live very close uh, by there. I rode my bike down that exact trail the other day, so I can attest to what you've seen. It's uh. it's terrible, and you know, I, I suppose yes. I mean, a garbage bin might make it an option for a student. We really should make sure that they understand that it, when the, you bought the hot dog over at Antle's Irving and it came in that right. silver wrapper, bring that silver wrapper back to your school, which absolutely <laughs> has a garbage bin, but. Uh. You know, people are oblivious. It, it's, you know, it speaks to me. It's just simply a lack of pride. Lack of pride in where you live. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, kids being kids too. And, you know, most kids today, I have to say, they're taught through school. They're taught, you know, my grandchildren wouldn't put a gum map around the floor and on, on the ground because they're taught not to. But when you get out with a bunch, uh, you know, with a hundred other kids and they're congregating and they're having their lunch from Burger King or from wherever and there's nowhere to put the garbage, it just goes on the ground. It's just what kids do. And uh, I don't understand why the the city hasn't addressed that issue because it is city land and a couple of garbage bins might be the answer. It's certainly a part of the uh, appropriate response to what we see in that exact neighborhood. I think, you know, and what we're talking about is some city-related garbage. But let's not forget the fact that you can go down just about any woods road or any woods trail and see some pretty massive items discarded as well, from mattresses to old uh, stoves and all the rest of it, all stuffed in the woods. So we've got a problem that's bigger than simply chip bags blowing around, don't we? Oh, I know. Absolutely. We've got a cat. So I know, I know that, I know that. But you know, this particular area, I think something could be done of it, done with it, and maybe, maybe a sign, even a city sign, you know, saying, "Please put your garbage in the garbage bins that we have placed here," might work. Anything to help. Yeah, or even a camera in the woods that says, smile, you're on camera. I remember there was a couple of communities a while back, they did exactly that, but they yeah. didn't really follow through with shame in the person, and I don't even know what became of it. But anyway, Connie, I really appreciate you making time. Hopefully that area and everywhere else gets cleaned up. Me too. Thanks, Patty. You do a great job. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye, Connie. All right, Connie had the last word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.